This is a podcast that contains spoilers, sensitive material, and acts of villainy. Listener discretion is advised. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Oh, right, for Christ's sake, why? Hey! Why? Why, because we fucking can! We don't submit to terror. I commit evil to destroy the greater evil. We make the terror. (laughs) Welcome to the World Domination Committee, a monthly podcast where we discuss villains from media and history, what makes a good villain, and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, Exzala, and I'm slick and slippery covered in oil! (whistles) Not that kind, the dinosaur bones kind. Oh, and profitable. (laughs) And I'm your other host, Trinzala, and I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! Tasty, tasty. So, we have some feedback. Yes, for episode 10, covering the Cambodian dictator Pol Pot. And we have some feedback from a new listener, Steph, who said that the podcast was very entertaining and was impressed with the amount of research. Thank you, Steph. We appreciate your feedback. Paul Pot was kind of a difficult episode to do research on because there was just so much information. Surprisingly, for such an uncovered villain dictator, there was a lot to read about him and it was kind of exhausting, but we basically scratched the surface on him. Yeah, we just like really covered the top. I think you... like. The Wikipedia article probably has more information in it. Too much than, information. I think I fell asleep a few times. Yeah. Just yeah. reading just the Wikipedia, like not even going into like the, the books and whatnot. Uh, but we really just scratched the surface. Yeah. I think you should view this podcast as a more of a jumping off point in, yeah, from exactly. our historical things. Cause there's just so much to cover in some of these things. Unlike Walpole, which is actually really hard to cover, there's like almost no information on him. Right. Which we covered in episode two. Exactly. So, for our historical deep mid-dives-ish, you know, jumping off point, if you want, do more research. But if you're just like background history podcast to fill your brain or your sleep, we're your source. And thank you, Steph, and we hope you keep listening. Yes. We also got feedback from our number one fan, Nav. Thank you again, Nav, who said, Pol Pot sounds like a failed bureaucratic dictator, or like someone who was in awe of the West wanting to imitate them. Meanwhile, they, meaning Cambodia, didn't have proper infrastructure to feed the nation. It's kind of like trying to force democratic voting in a country like Afghanistan, where people don't have buses or trains to even travel to a place to vote. Very shoehorny with shoving the whole ideology in a totally unrelated culture and history. I think that hits the nail on the head, basically. They also pointed out that uh, apparently communist.org is for sale. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, time to start a fake news site. I'm going to have to go buy that before the podcast <laughs> comes out. That or perhaps communist.org can sponsor us, wink, wink. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no, I think just uh, maybe sabotaging the competition of world domination might. Yes, there can be no others. There's only the council. We'll be the first among equals. And, dear listener Nav, I hope you join the council and can sit down one day with us so we can talk some business. And if you can't join us, maybe you will just so happen to find yourself 
a talking head on this podcast. It's not a threat, it's a promise. We also touched on the Albanian genocide very briefly, which it was mentioned this is kind of an unknown topic. We might consider diving into this at a later date, actually. Yeah, I was actually just watching a YouTube video about uh, Turkey earlier. Mm. So, and that gets involved in the whole Albanian situation just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a skosh. Just a skosh. We also had another question asking if it would be Rousseau-esque to unionize, which I thought was actually a pretty interesting question. I think it was targeted at you specifically because of your hatred for Rousseau. <laughs> I hate him so much. So much. Um, but I, th- I did find this question pretty interesting, and uh, I had to think about it a little bit, which, God forbid, I think about anything. That, that That's just like a sign for trouble. Sign for trouble. Just kidding. I think that Rousseau would probably dismiss the idea of corporations outright and whatnot. But if he didn't say he didn't like deny corporations outright, it would really depend on the type of union and the union structure. So based on his writings, he was really in favor of more like direct um, democracy type of action or having a social contract specifically with like the individual to the entity. And so as much of that, that can get closer to the individual level, I think he would support it. So if you had a union where everyone voted to strike at a certain time or went through that kind of process, then I think he'd be absolutely in favor of that union. Makes sense. Now, if it was a union that had union reps because they are like professional, like union people or people that's like, like representing you or making new rules for you or turning into like this weird organization existing inside of an organization existing inside of a nation state. I don't think he would be down for that. I think he would see the union as pretty oppressive and basically limiting his rights, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, the appointing of a figurehead would be kind of counterintuitive in that regard. Exactly. It would basically limit like liberty or freedom or kind of he would say like you're kind of being forced into a contract at that thing he would probably also say just like leave <laughs> he would probably say that like you know corporations shouldn't have as much power as they do yeah. like he would probably go just like outright like dismiss all of it but i think if you forced him down he said like okay here's everything you missed on twitter since you were dead in the 1700s <laughs> if you got him past that point and you like forced him down and you held him down uh I think then and only then, if you forced him to, he would say that he's in favor of modern unions. But I think he would be gritting his teeth. Fair enough, fair enough. So that that's probably what I would say about uh, what Rousseau would think about unions. Obviously, there is more to say, and I had a conversation with, this, uh, uh, with the person who asked this, and we went really in-depth but I don't think union uh, unions are necessarily Rousseau-esque. I would say maybe adjacent. Fair enough. Well, on another note, somebody also mentioned that in terms of alignment, Paul Pot was a mastermind, yes, but also acted as a bully and a fanatic. I mean, specifically, he bullied his country into agrarianism and basically killed anyone who opposed him in his Rousseau fangirling phase. So I, I think that's a fair point. He masterminded 
the Cambodian genocide and restructuring society, but used bully tactics to do so. Yeah. I know this won't be as big of a consolation, but I would like to apologize to the nation of Vietnam for calling them Vietnamese. Did I say that properly? (laughs) Yes, finally. (laughs) All right. Well, that addresses feedback for episode 10 covering Pol Pot. So let's dive into today's villain. Today, we are covering a villain from a movie. Today's villain is Daniel Plainview from the 2007 film, There Will Be Blood. Now, how did you find this piece of land, this, uh, media? Well, back in the Wayback Machine, when you and I had first met, this is actually on our, like, movie bucket list to watch together. Uh... It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. I was a little bit apprehensive because of the length, and I had I was not much into his, historical fiction, essentially. So before we could get to watching it together after an IB exam, I was sitting basically alone in a history class with two other people after the exam had finished, and the teacher was like, all right, y'all have done your exams, school is basically over, put that in the vault. I'm going to put on a movie and there will be blood played in the background. And I was working on my gay agenda, my comics and watching there will be blood in a history class with very few people. And I was like, you know what? This is pretty intriguing. Maybe I shouldn't be so apprehensive to watch it. Still did not finish the movie. Obviously our class was not long enough to watch on almost three hour long film. And I believe two years ago, I finally finished it in fullness and recently rewatched it. Yeah, I think I discovered this film because I was really interested in the time period right before World War One at the time, and the Captains of Industry, the Robber Barons, like all of that, and I came across this film, and probably some Reddit thread or something <laughs> like that, and I was like, oh, Daniel Day-Lewis, oh, awesome, and I went ahead and watched it, and it was an amazing movie, and just absolutely loved it, fell in love with it. Very high, probably at least in my top 10, if not top 5, favorite movies of all time. This is also really hardcore during your theater arc, so watching Daniel Day-Lewis method act in this, I think, really piqued your interest. For sure, for sure. I also figured that you love this movie because of the kind of Red Dead Redemption vibes it gives off. Yes, yeah, it kind of gives off some Red Dead vibes, probably just because of the Mojave. I, I just really like anything with the Mojave in it. yeah. Which, interestingly enough, actually the movie was shot in Texas, so... Rup, rup! <laughs> also, if you're interested uh, in learning more about Red Dead Redemption, you can give a listen to episode 5, where we cover Dutch Vanderlyn. But that that's an aside. So let's get into the overview of Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. As mentioned, There Will Be Blood is a 2007 film by director Paul Thomas Anderson. It's actually based on a novel called Oil by Upton Sinclair. But what a we're great not- name. <laughs> Oil. Oh, oh. We are not covering the book Oil by Upton oh. Sinclair. We're just covering the movie today. So the movie follows Daniel Plainview, a ruthless oil man, and his son H.W. as they strip the land for profit. Give it to us, mother. Give it to us, Mother Earth. Give us the blood of the earth. Give me the tasty, tasty dinosaur bones. Dinosaur bones. And the main clump. The main conflict of this film basically lies between, at least how I saw, old gods and new, as Daniel faces off against Eli, a Christian who is also vying for power and land, whereas Daniel is trying to 
uh, siphon off the oil of the land and become a modern god in a way. Yeah, I also think it's a good film that intertwines interpersonal drama um, as well as industry. Exactly, exactly. And you can see how people's personalities are shaped by different industries, especially when it comes to our protagonist and antagonist, Daniel Plainview (laughs) and Eli. And it kind of represents, as you said, kind of like the old gods and the new gods. But I would also say it's kind of just a battle of outlook. Like, you know, their end goals are the same, but then we eventually kind of see that their methods are pretty similar. Right, right. Which, which then is like, which one's justified? Yeah, know? especially because their morality is very questionable. But we'll, we'll get into that. So obviously our sources today are the movie, There Will Be Blood. Let's get into, I guess... Prospecting! Yeah, the yeah let's go prospecting. Let's go uh, get some nice gold. Buckle up, buttercup. We're taking a trip in the Wayback Machine to 1889, of which the movie starts. We follow Daniel Plainview, our protagonist, antagonist, basically... In a ditch, in a well, prospecting for gold. Theoretically, also prospecting for oil. I think it's actually, he's inside of an oil discovery well. Yeah. Because we see a similar shape happen often uh, later. But what's different here is that Daniel is by himself. Yes, he is prospecting alone in the middle of the desert where he crosses his threshold. Upon trying to excavate this well for some kind of riches, be it gold or oil he breaks his leg and falls down into the well where he does discover there is gold inside it actually silver but it's close enough a a metal that is profitable and so ballsy as he is he drags himself with broken leg out of this well and maybe a broken back too yeah yeah he he, falls down the well severe injury we see he breaks his leg he's i'm sure he's damaged a lot of other stuff but he crawls his way out of the well from hell into town melts down his oars and makes a fat profit I also think that he is not only selling the um, silver that he found, but he's also probably selling the property rights yes. so that the entire vein can be sold to someone else. Yeah. And what I really like about this, uh, this is the very beginning of the movie, obviously, and also the beginning of the story for us uh, with Daniel. But I really like how there's a very strong choice to not use any dialogue. For the first 15 minutes. It's just us with Daniel. No uh, personal narrator. Nothing. We just see Daniel working in silence. It really captures the solitude not only of being in the desert, but also working that grind to get your pay and kind of just the toil of it. The physical labor, especially with the pain involved. But then as soon as he is able to change in what he finds for profit, the dialogue actually starts up in the film. So it's kind of like all right, this is worth it. Let's get into it. I also think it really exemplifies his determination and stubbornness. Well, yeah, dragging yourself out all the way through the desert into the town because you're like, I want my cash money. I didn't break my leg falling into a well to not get anything out of it. And I think this also kind of illustrates what happened to a fair amount of people during this era who would make it to the top tier in the industry is Mm -hmm. they have a moment where they get kind of lucky or they have some starting capital Mm -hmm. to get into it. Either they're lucky because they were, they're they're definitely lucky if they were born into an already wealthy family. But then, you know, sometimes there's like gamblers who they won really big and then 
that's when they go into the oil industry or that's when they go into like the train industry, which at this time would have been like, you know, kind of crazy new industries because this was during the industrialization of the world. Exactly. I mean, you could also say that Daniel just going into this well was gamble in and of itself. You don't know 100% if there's anything in there. So he's taking that initial risk and he won that gamble. He wasn't born, born into a family of wealth, but he does get the profit out of it. So in 1902, he continues this drive. He has had this taste of what he can get. So he continues to do prospecting, but this time it's for the liquid gold, the oil that is underneath property. And bada bing, bada boom, we have oil, baby! Oil! He ends up striking oil in a well, um, and we can obviously see that he's doing much better. He is operating at least one drill, and Mm -hmm. he has now people amongst him yes he is no longer alone he's got a team he's got machinery and equipment and he's got high hopes essentially however not everything is perfect of course machinery is faulty and this is where daniel basically experiences one of his few trauma points the machinery at this potentially successful oil derrick that has just struck oil breaks not only injuring daniel again but also killing one of his colleagues while they are in the well together his head gets bashed in as the piece of machinery falls down the well yeah i believe it's specifically the drill that is being lowered in to be put into place Mm -hmm. um and like probably then connected to a shaft but it just misses Daniel by maybe a few inches. Yeah, he gets injured. Like, I think it grazes him and he hits his head on something, but it kills his colleague. They're yeah. down in the pit and one of them is dead. One of them is injured. So there's that big emotion of, oh, we have found oil. This is great. And then immediately followed by tragedy where one of your comrades, probably one of your first colleagues in this industry, is killed on the job. So it's, like right in front of you, too. Exactly. It's full of risk. Obviously, Daniel knows this, but it's really tangible. This is the first time that like he is encountering the death of somebody else. We'll see this kind of happen a lot. I don't think that this is Daniel's fault at all. No, I mean, he, he isn't the engineer who built the Derrick. Right. Maybe he could have been more careful with that, but also it's probably his first well, so he's not as experienced with this yet. No excuse, but still... We can also kind of see that a common theme will be is that he's still human and he's very like evil at some points, but then in quiet moments where not a lot of people can see, he actually takes on a more kinder face. Right. After this instance where his colleague is killed in the well, before we see that his colleague is killed in the well, there are a few one-off shots of the man who does die carrying a baby around, interacting with a child in the middle of the desert presumably his own and after this man dies daniel essentially takes this baby and raises it as his own this baby is later named hw and basically spurs on daniel's business even further not only as an oil business a profiting business but as a family business now there's also a lot of analyses that we've seen uh, out there that will kind of mention that he only does this because Um, it'll look good that he is now operating a family business. However, in those moments just after when we see him taking the child, it doesn't seem like he's like 
oh, yes, finally, my opportunity to... No, I think it's more of a sense of moral responsibility. Oh, this is an orphan now. We don't know where the mother is. I mean, the fact that the the co-worker brought the baby into the field is like, oh, I probably don't have any form of childcare. So I think as the business owner, Daniel, feel, Daniel feels a sense of responsibility. Maybe that inkling of, like, family, but at what we... But when we first see Daniel taking on H.W. as his adoptive son, it's genuine. Absolutely. Anyway, I think with Daniel and H.W. finally together, that's where our story really starts kicking into a, yes. a, like at least second gear. Right. And we kind of cut to uh, a different time. We don't quite know when it is. Um, it's around 1911. It's around yeah, 1911. So flash forward. Yes. And obviously, H.W. is now much older, probably around, what would you say, 10, 11? Between 8 to 11. Between 8 to like So 11. he's a kid, but, he, you know, he has his wits about him. He can talk. He's learning on the job with his dad. Yes. Uh, adoptive dad. Yes, which he, I don't think he knows. Because no, no. when he was a child, he was like a baby. So yes. he has no idea. Anyway, Daniel now owns at least three wells, I believe. Yes. And the wells are paying about 5K a week, which in... Like, 1900s money is... absurd. Yeah, that's, like, an absurd amount. I mean, still, 5K a week is nothing to bat your eye at in modern day. (laughs) Oh, no, absolutely. But, I mean, 5K a week, I mean, he's paying, like, all of, like, the building cost, all of his employees, you know, whatnot. Yeah, true, true. Still, uh, it's an insane amount of profit, probably. Yeah, he's a big oil man at this point in time now. He's a huge oil man. And... He's going from being kind of like, I would say, a small business to he has higher ambitions. Mm-hmm. So now him and HW are kind of on the road looking for places where oil might be and with people who are willing to sell the land rights. Kind of touching on that, that gambler's mindset again, as you mentioned earlier, we but, don't know what's under the land, but we're willing to make the bet that you've got something and we can profit. And you can, too. Yes, absolutely. He And also, he has kind of like a big bankroll now. Mm-hmm. So we'll see that he doesn't have nearly... A, he, it's not desperate, but no, he's no. still looking very It's ambition. Hard. Yeah. So we cut to him kind of being uh giving a speech to the town to a like a town in the mojave it's like mm-hmm. somewhere kind of weird and we kind of see his manipulation tactics for the first time because we've seen his determination we've seen his caring we see that he's had success but we haven't seen him actually try to do business yet yeah and so he it, he gathers the town together kind of like in a meeting hall or maybe perhaps the church kind of sort mm-hmm. of thing and uh, he starts pitching to them that he's a family man who runs a family business and there's very few oilmen that can understand to operate in a moral, caring way such as he. I mean, he's also pitching to families. I want to get what's under your land. So he's taking that like emotional appeal in uh, rhetoric, basically like, oh, I understand you. I am like you. Here's why you should do business with me. He even like goes into further detail of I'm the oil man. Someone, uh, if you don't take up my offer to you know buy up some of uh, your land rights, then um, there's going to be someone else that comes through town trying to do exactly the same thing. Except they're going to be a middleman, mm-hmm. and they're basically going to take your land rights without giving anything back to the community because they don't care because they're not the oil person or the community. 
and not the family man either. Yeah, so that's his kind of like his logos in the speech. Right. So he's kind of, we see that he is a little bit using his adoptive son, H.W., for this play. Still, uh, from what we can tell, genuinely cares about the boy. But now he is using that for his business advantage as well. The town meeting basically devolves into chaos. And I think this kind of gets Daniel to think about his strategy more. Yeah, and so Daniel is giving kind of like all the speeches and whatnot, and he's kind of coming to the end. And as he's coming to the end, the town like kind of like erupts into arguing, being like giving questions like, what about this? Like, you know, what about this? And they're like, no, we can't agree to deal with this guy. He's they gonna... also doubt his trustworthiness. Exactly. And from that, Daniel doesn't even try to convince them. He just gets up and leaves. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, 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 I'm good. And then, like, someone chases after him and be like, no, 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 we'll, we'll sell the land. It's going to be good. We're going to give you a good price and everything. And he's like, I, I don't need it. And he just ends it. Now, I think he ends it because he has kind of, he's a gambler, but he has a bankroll. He doesn't need this town. Right. He wants this town, but he doesn't need it, so to speak. And I think that if he sees that if he has too much trouble, it's Con- not worth it. Yeah, convincing the people that it's not worth it. Well, especially also because he kind of made them a good deal off the bat. He, of course, wants to profit. He's a businessman. Um, so he offers basically to lease their land that he will drill for the oil fields under their land, uh, but offering them one-six royalties and a guarantee to drill in 10 days with families. So he he's basically offering them a quick-to-move thing, but he knows he doesn't have to make this offer to people if they're going to snub him, essentially. Yeah, and he also says with uh, not only is he offering jobs to the people there, which is going to pay money, mm-hmm. like probably better than like farming in the Mojave, which is notoriously <laughs> not that great for farming or ranching. I mean, it's probably good for ranching, but not good for farming. What are you farming? Gila monster venom? <laughs> Dandelions. <laughs> um... But he also offers, like, he's like, hey, you know, if the drill's here, the town will be here, then, like, like schools might start coming in. You know, more people moving in. like Opportunity. Opportunity. So that kind of motivates him, but at the same time... Like, well, I'm saying, like, to the town. Yes. Like, he's, like, he's telling the town, like, you know, like, this is, like, you know, there might even be a hospital here to take care of you people. Like, you know, you're gonna have more to eat than just bread. Yeah. Also, essentially, like, we'll put your town on the map. So he, yeah. he's making good promises, but at the same time, like, we know his true motivation. He wants to continue getting that money and, like, rising into power. So after the town meeting has devolved, Daniel moves along. But this, but after this, he basically meets a mentor in a way, or at least one of them. A good old church boy called Paul Sunday comes to Daniel with the potential for oil under his land. So... The business dealings did not go well in this town. Under Paul's land, right? Uh, I was talking about the, the town beforehand. Oh. Nothing nothing happened. Yeah, nothing but happened. But this mysterious figure, good old church boy, says, I have oil under my land. I want you to drill for it. But he doesn't really disclose anything. He says, I know there's something here. He asked for $600 to disclose this mysterious location of profitable oil under his own ranch. And Daniel goes, you know what? This is less than what I would have offered to the other town. I'll give you $500 to disclose information, but give me some information about your family. What do you do here? 
and he learns that the Sunday Ranch is one of those not profitable Mojave-style farms. They have goats. They cannot grow crops. So I think it's- I have goats in Texas. <laughs> They're fun. They're also mean. I, I think it's safe to assume that the Sunday family is not having a fun time with their goats. They're basically like in Dust Bowl land. So maybe Paul is lying about the oil underneath. Maybe there's actually something there. From that, we can also kind of see Daniel's negotiation tactics when there's not a group, like a huge group of people. Yeah, it's one on one. He can kind of whittle it down more. Yeah, and he also he gets uh, pretty mean during the negotiations. At one point, like. Paul wants a K for it. Then he's like, okay, I'll give you 200 for it. Or like, you know, okay, say you pay me half now, then half after I go back. Bargaining. Like, yeah, bargaining, like seeing which kind, like, all of that good stuff. But when they finally agree on that $500 amount, uh, it all goes well. Paul gives him all this information. And then Daniel ends it by like looking at Paul and being like, hey, you know, if I just gave you $500 and I get there and there's nothing there, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take more than just my money. Is that fine with you? Basically, I will take your life. Yeah. So he's pretty threatening and he does it like very subtle, but also like you can kind of tell that he is not lying. Well, yeah, that's what makes it scarier. Kind of like when we mentioned Paul Pot from episode 10 being like the quiet collected dictator when Daniel goes, I'm going to take more than the money. Is that like, all right with you? In such a calm, nice way. It's more intimidating, basically. After this, Daniel goes to the Sunday Ranch to see if Paul was lying or not. He brings H.W., and they essentially case the joint. They pose as quail hunters and meet Paul's family, the Sundays, including Nasty Eli, who's Paul's twin, apparently. Okay, I know... There's, they are two different people. Conspiracy corner. Conspiracy con- corner. Conspiracy corner. I know they're two different people. I, I know. Um, but Eli and Paul are identical twins. Mm-hmm. So they look the same. Everything looks absolutely the same and whatnot. But you never see them in the same room at the same time together. Suspicious. Now, the dialogue throughout the movie supports that there is definitely two people. But I like to think that during this time, it's actually just Eli. Yeah. And that could be advantageous to his game to be like, oh, I'm not, I'm not as smart as my brother. My brother knows things that I don't. Right. I, I like to imagine that it's just Eli manipulating Daniel to come to his land. Yeah. It, yes, exactly. And also to get some payment out of it. Right. In order to spruce up the church, maybe. Yes. And, like, back in 1911-ish, there was no Facebook, there was no internet, there was no X to check, oh, are Paul and Eli actually twins? Do Are there two Sunday boys? Yeah, this is, like, probably the time where I could probably just put on a really nice suit, walk down the street and be like, I'm Cornelius Vanderbilt. I mean, what, are you going to argue with me? Like, I look like, you know, I'm all suited up, I'm fit, I look kind of vaguely similar to the guy. Maybe. I, I don't I mean, know what Cornelius Vanderbilt looks like, but <laughs> it, it's not like you're going to fact check me on him immediately. It's not too far-fetched, actually. Um, when I was 12, I had a friend, and I had just moved to another house, and they came over to visit, and I wanted to troll them, so I put on hair extensions and a pair of glasses I never use, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm X's twin, or I'm X's cousin visiting from Canada, or, like, whatever, and they believed me for a solid 30 minutes. Just They were like, oh, where is X? I was like... 
oh, I don't know, they're helping mom in the kitchen or something like that. They bought it. I was just wearing hair extensions and a pair of glasses. So you can do people. Oh, yeah. In this a- modern age, too. Absolutely. When That's I- what catfish is all about. <laughs> <laughs> when I was uh, on vacation once, there was a uh, guy there. And I was going to like some of like, the kids' corner, or, like the... the so the parents can go drink and vacation. Leave your kids here. It'll be fine. I was in one of those. And there was a kid there from Ireland. And we were like, oh, my gosh. He's from Ireland. That's crazy. And I heard about this guy before I actually met him. So I decided that I would put on a fake English accent and fake that I was from, like, I don't know, like London or something for, like, a long time. The dude believed me. The, the Irish dude, believe me, for the entire week. Nice, nice. And when I switched to American accent, he blew him out of the water. <laughs> so that was the kind of fun things we did before Google. <laughs> Make people think you're someone you're not. It was so much easier. It was so much easier back then. And also, it would, make, it would just make sense. It would just make sense that Paul and Eli are the same person. If you watch the movie, watch it again with this lens that they are the same. Yeah, it... it changes it pretty dramatically but i enjoy the change well as mentioned daniel and his son do go to eli and paul's land and they find that paul was telling the truth hw steps in a ditch that happens to be full of oil thanks to a recent earthquake that affected the region and daniel checks it he lights it on fire and he goes this is what i live for this is what we came this is what i live for (laughs) (laughs) exactly (sighs) So they know that there is oil under the land and they can make a pretty penny. And also they don't have to kill Paul. Yeah. (laughs) That would be inconvenient. So Daniel is sitting there on this land and he's been, you know, kind of saying that they're going out quail hunting. But actually he is doing a little bit of surveying. Prospecting. A little bit prospecting. Surveillance. You know, just looking at the land. And obviously it looks pretty promising. So he sits down with H.W. and he starts discussing with H.W. what his next plan of attack Mm -hmm. is. And we see this pretty common through the beginnings of the film of he'll have moments where he'll sit down H.W. and be like, okay, this is how we're going to tackle this problem. I mean, he is his business partner. He's his son, yeah, but he's kind of training this kid up. Like, this is how it's done. This is how we're going to work through it together. Exactly. We also see uh, a little bit of his manipulation coming in. While he said that he promised the people, like, you know, when uh, he was drilling that they had, like, education, you know, 10 days, employment, like, all that good stuff. If he was actually, like, legitimate about that and not just doing it for, like, having to do that to get the people to lease their land or, you know, operate in their things. Because right here, he tells HW, okay, what we need to do is we need to basically trick these people. Mm -hmm. We're going to give them quail prices. For this land because yeah. we know it's a good land because as far as all of the sunday family except for paul know hw and daniel are here for quail right and paul is not at the sunday uh church right now unless you think it's eli in which case it is <laughs> um which would make perfect sense for what happens later exactly so you can already see that if he's giving them quail prices it's going to be dramatically lower yeah. than if he gets oil prices so we can kind of see that deep 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 down everything he's doing for these towns or whatnot is at a strategic level not at 
an actual moral level well, of like, yeah i mean drilling for oil there's not going to be morality in there but anyway yeah it, his temptations are really shining in these discussions he's having with his adaptive son so after daniel discusses with hw what their strategy will be they sit down with the sunday household essentially eli because paul's not in the picture for some reason and the father abel sunday daniel offers that he's going to buy their land instead at this discussion, Eli pitches, okay, give me six bucks an acre, and Daniel offers a flat up $3.7,000 instead. For like all of it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, not an acre, whatever. Flat out, I want your land for this. But Eli believes Daniel's full of shit for his reasonings because Eli also knows oil is there. How convenient. And Daniel knows oil is there. Yeah, it's very, very convenient. Hmm, your twin pitch that there's oil in the land, but you are making negotiations now? Yeah, it seems very, very sus. So Eli counteroffers with, like, 10K for, like, the oil seepage on, like, the mm. land, basically, or, like, the, the rights to kind of, like, the land. He's getting kind of ballsy here. Yes, he is getting a little bit ballsier. And he asked the 10K for specifically the town church i believe oh yes which we find out that is eli's passion yeah eli is more a church boy than paul so-called yeah i would say that he's definitely more of a church guy than uh paul but also there's not really much to do in this town no <laughs> yeah they small community even call it a town. you have your little ram ranch <laughs> 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 and you have a few people that yeah we're homesteading what else is there to do let's praise jesus so there's no cable no (laughs) there's only so much pretending your twin brother that you can do you can only make so many kids before it (laughs) starts becoming drab i mean that's how you fill the church i mean that's how you fill the fields too (laughs) so we learn eli's true motivation is for his church because that's how he gets power well yeah that's how he gets power and We see that Daniel is really motivated to make this work unlike the town that he was at previously. And also you can see here that Paul might have not been lying with the amount of oil that's here. Mm -hmm. And there doesn't seem to be any competition here yet. Yeah, it's basically untouched. Like, it's his for the taking if they can negotiate a price. Mm -hmm. And they do. So that I would say that's most of the negotiations. So we finally settle at a price for not only, I think, the land... Mm-hmm. which we can only kind of assume was probably about the 3.7 figure yeah. that Daniel offered. And then on top of that, what's underneath the 10K for the church. Mm-hmm. So something about like 13K. And they finally get to this deal, but it's very tense. And you can kind of see that Daniel's very disappointed that Eli kind of knows and is already starting to kind of give him, like, the runaround. Yeah, pulling the strings a little bit. He's like, oh, I wasn't expecting this, but you know what? This is the best I've got because it's such a smaller scale compared to, like, trying to negotiate with entire towns. Absolutely. And we also know that we'll eventually find out that Eli has significant sway Mm -hmm. over this town. Absolutely. So once he wins this battle, he really wins the community. Yes. I would actually say that Eli and Paul negotiate pretty similarly they're both it's both a hard bargain um threats get involved and many times when daniel and uh quote-unquote eli talk and we'll kind of see that animosity grow between them as it gets further so daniel basically makes this deal makes this buy up of just the sundays 
ranch. And then he moves on to kind of informing the rest of the town, gives his speech, very yeah. similar speech. Here's what's going on. Here's how we're going to benefit the Sunday family. And here's how we could benefit you too. And it all seems to go actually swimmingly. Yeah. They don't have many questions. All they want to know is, will the church be provided for? Yeah. It's the only sense of community here. It's, I think also the town previously had more people. And by more people, I'm thinking like a whole 30 more people. <laughs> like, but now it's basically a ghost town. So Daniel's involvement is basically like, oh, it's going to flourish again. There won't be as many people to get in my way. <laughs> true, true. So after Daniel makes his announcement to the town, he starts basically installing his machinery, getting workers out, and kind of fulfilling his promise. There is an improvement boom in the town. And on the launch of the new oil derrick, Eli comes to Daniel with another negotiation. He wants to bless this oil drill and be introduced to the town, basically. Obviously, Eli is a foundational member to his church, but he wants to have a little bit of an association, I would think, with the town's newfound success and improvement. Oh, if I bless this drill, they will associate our profitability and our prosperity with me. Yes, and we also find out that Eli is the preacher Mm -hmm. at the church, which is why he has such a vested interest. Yeah, of course. And why he wants to bless this well, because this well is starting to actually do the promises that Daniel does in his speech. It's starting to improve the town. People are starting to get richer. There's employment. Mm-hmm. Most of the town is actually now employed yeah, by there's Daniel. There's more people in the town. There's more people in the church. And things are actually seeming to go pretty well. And so I think that Eli wants them to associate all of their well-being with, uh, I would say, the Christian God mm-hmm. or himself. Yeah, yeah. A- instead of... Uh, being like oh the oil derrick yeah daniel's doing the work his employees are doing the work but if eli blesses it then people put that face to the prosperity essentially right he's trying to avoid a what is it i believe is it like isn't there a time like where people are like praising a golden cow in the bible oh yeah false idol yeah i think that Eli might think of the oil derrick as a false idol. Or even Daniel himself. Or even Daniel himself. Mm-hmm. But if he can assuage, like, assuage that and then bring it more to him, all good to go. Remind people that the old god still lives for a little bit. Right. However, Daniel is kind of opposed to this idea of Eli attaching himself to the brand, basically. But he doesn't tell him immediately. No, no, he doesn't. And it's not only because he kind of conflicts with Eli, like, person to person, but also he's seen that the Sunday family is not all they're made out to be either. He has heard because H.W. befriended the youngest daughter of the Sundays, Mary, that she is being abused by her father when she doesn't pray. So... I think Daniel kind of takes this personally because Mary is in similar age as H.W. He goes, I'm not going to let you attach your God to what I'm doing that makes the community prosper. So instead, he names the well after Eli's sister Mary and blesses it himself. Basically, like saying, a big fuck, fuck you to Eli. And he doesn't tell Eli, he just does it. And Eli is fucking pissed. And I think we should also mention that Mary is part of the Sunday family. Yeah, I so said this that. is she's the yeah. youngest daughter. Yeah, so this is like added 
insult to injury to Eli specifically, I believe. Yes, yeah. He was supposed to bless it. It was supposed to be his big thing, even though it was really Daniel's big thing. But instead, the name goes to Mary. End of story, basically. Interestingly enough, the church still looks really small (laughs) for having 10K worth of investment. I mean, it's only in development. Okay. (laughs) I'm just wondering where all this money is going. (laughs) And also, Daniel is like, this motherfucker made me pay like this much extra money. Then he wants to come over here, bless the well, while he's letting the fuck face dumbass dad over there beat the shit out of Mary. What the fuck? So something uh, rotten is in the state of Denmark or the Sunday Land. Yeah, Sunday Ranch, Ram Ranch. <laughs> well, the Derek Lange goes fine until that evening when one of the employees named Joe Gunder is lost down the well. He gets his head bashed in by a piece of machinery, kind of like Daniel's first employee who died on the job, H.W.'s father. At this point, I would say that this is Daniel's fault. Mm-hmm. He may have rushed the job to get the launch. Uh, it's a very similar, uh, happenstance. Now, Daniel wasn't involved in this accident whatsoever. In fact, he was sleeping at the time and had to be awoken. What probably happened is he probably was in there, didn't alert anyone. The safety protocols were not followed. So Daniel does the right thing after saying that he should clean up the body and whatnot and put him in the tent. He shuts down the drilling. Only for half a day, though. For a whole half day. I mean, that is kindness. Giving them a whole break, a whole ass half day off of work. Are you kidding me? Every time that well is not drilling, it's not making money. And that's what we need to do here. We need to make money. So I would say, this is very generous. After giving the town a half day off, Daniel also mentions some new rules, or one specifically, that you have to tell people if you go down to drill. But no other safety measures are put in place. He makes his way on down to Eli's church to ask for a funeral, but he witnesses a weird proceeding happening. Eli is leading a sermon and very fervently basically performs an exorcism on a woman's arthritis. In this scene, it's, of course, you know, kind of the speaking in tongues deal. Yeah, he is it's one of those praying churches. away the arthritis. We follow Eli's motions, basically casting the devil out of this woman's hands, but are basically put in, like, the camera is pushed out of the church, basically like a demon being exercised. But the big arm demon from hell! But essentially, we are left with Daniel landing in the church, almost like some kind of demon has been removed from the church, but the true demon remains, at least from Eli's perspective. After the sermon disperses, Daniel and Eli have a little heart-to-heart about what is going on with the well and the funeral proceedings that need to happen. Yeah, I would say they kind of get into a disagreement. Like, they should probably both be talking about the man who died and, like, what to do or how to help. No, 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 no. These men are both way too interested in themselves <laughs> to be disagreeing about that. We know that uh this is where like the war really starts to turn hot and we actually see like basically Eli's like, hey Daniel, this whole well thing, not a great idea. It could have been avoided. It could have been avoided. You have people dying. This is ungodly, Daniel. 
and it's probably he's probably just saying this really because he didn't bless the well. <laughs> yeah, he's salty about it. He's like, my church has been snubbed by this rich oil man. <laughs> and I think Eli's kind of also vying for like, hey, you know, this, you know, this could all be alleviated by God by maybe a little bit more ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Uh, or basically just being like, ah, we have the money, like GTFO. And Daniel is saying like, hey, the only reason that you have the money in the first place is because of my well here. And they really set themselves at a definite line in the sand that they both know they're never going to get along. They're never going to get along, but also neither of them are leaving. They have to coexist. Yes. Also, this is an interesting point because during uh, right before they get into their disagreement, it Eli says, oh, Daniel, it's so nice to have you here. Which means this entire time, he's not been going to church, which the entire town goes to church, except for Daniel. Well, Daniel follows the other church, the Church of Oil. Yes. <laughs> the Church of Avarice. He follows the new gods. <laughs> so after they have this very heated discussion where they realize nobody's leaving, they kind of hit a point of stalemate. And business continues as usual, up until... What do you know? Another accident happens at the Derrick. And I think this brings to a point of revelation and death for Daniel. Absolutely. The Derrick strikes oil, which erupts in a geyser. Or at least an oil pocket. Yeah. Because there's been oil around, but it's just seeping. It's seeping, but this is the full, like, the cinematic burst of oil from the land. But it catches fire, and not only that, it also rockets HW off a third or fourth story floor where he hits his head and tells his dad i can't hear my own voice so they have struck oil in the like grandiose sense that it's spilling everywhere but it has caught fire all the machinery is being damaged and also daniel's son is now injured and potentially deaf and this is just an insane situation obviously uh yeah so the workers are going to basically try to handle the situation along with Daniel. And so they go over and apparently to get rid of a blowout during this time period, they wouldn't be like putting concrete into it or anything like that. They actually utilized a method of where they get a ton of dynamite. This sounds (laughs) counterintuitive. Yeah. A ton of dynamite. And then they approach the oil that's gushing, on fire. That's on fire, being pushed out by like something like methane gas or something like that to cause a blowout. And uh, they light the dynamite. And the basic idea is that it blows up. And when it blows up, the explosive force basically pushes out all of the fuel sources around the oil fire to basically kind of smother it. So it smothers it with an explosion. And since the uh, it doesn't have the amount of oxygen it needs to continue burning in that brief period, it just goes out completely. And then from there, they're kind of able to control the oil or the the drill, basically. Man, imagine trying something like that after having spicy explosive diarrhea. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Doesn't work like that for humans. But they are able to successfully snuff out the oil fire. Yeah, I think nowadays they just use, like, a bidet, though. Um, (laughs) uh, Now, this is a bit of an aside, but I hate Eli. But imagining from his perspective, 
seeing this guy Ugh. coming into your town. Uh, I know, empathy. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and then seeing everything he's doing, kind of taking control. But then after a tragedy, seeing basically hellfire spurting from the ground... I feel like he'd probably be like, wow, the devil really is on my land, isn't he? <laughs> and, and then Daniel's just like, oh, let's go blow his ass up. <laughs> After everything finally calms down, Daniel is able to get a doctor in to see what is wrong with HW. They basically pin this kid to a bed and stick stuff in his ear. You know how every friendly doctor does, checking if you're deaf or not. And He can't, he can't give informed consent because no one can inform him. <laughs> They could write it on a piece of paper. We don't even know if HW can read. I think he can. Anyway, he is confirmed that he is deaf, which is really rough for an 11-year-old at any time, especially this time. Absolutely. (laughs) And Daniel basically is shell-shocked by this. As we mentioned, it's a revelation in death for him. His main business partner, his son, has lost his hearing because of Daniel's efforts to try and make money. So the only way that he thinks he can reconcile this is by summoning a teacher to teach H.W. sign language. But not before Daniel has to come face-to-face with good old Eli. I think this is really rough on Daniel, because mm-hmm. Daniel feels a lot of personal responsibility uh, for what's happened to H.W. I mean, it, it is kind of his fault. It is kind of his fault, uh, because, you know, it is the the drilling... Although no one could have predicted that a blowout would occur. Also, H.W. shouldn't have been climbing onto third or fourth story roofs and just, like, watched the oil stuff happen, like, oil drilling. There is a little bit of that. I think Daniel really does deeply care for H.W. Yeah. But in this encounter, I don't think that Daniel really wants to face his own demons, that he might have been a key cause in H.W. going deaf. And so he needs to kind of redirect I guess that anger, you could say. Let me fix it. Let me fix it. But it's too hard to fix. He'd like, And he doesn't know if, like, he's like, he asked multiple people. He's like, I don't know. Does, does your hearing come back yeah. to you? To, like, a lot of people. Like, you know. Even the doctor doesn't know. Like, it could be gone forever. It might come back. I don't know. 19-something modern science. We don't know about. It kind of reminds me of when Frodo is asking Sam if his thumb will grow back in Lord <laughs> of the Rings. That's what it reminds me of. It's like, yeah. no, no, it's not how it works. <laughs> anyway, Daniel goes to, like, Eli. And Eli is basically, like, asking for more money or something at this point. And Daniel's just, like, over it. And I think Eli's doing this because he's like, oh, that big disaster that happened. You know, this is bad, yeah, Daniel. We talked about this. Mm-hmm. We ta- I, I told you that oil business was and no I feel good. Like Daniel approached him to kind of do damage control in a way, but then Eli spinning it for, oh, give me more money just makes it worse. Oh, yeah. It sends Daniel over the, like, top. And so Daniel goes over and basically he's like, God will help, uh, will help your child. And like, Daniel's just like slaps him across the face, like really hard. Uh, so much so that Eli falls to the ground into like some mud, which we can kind of like, this is really Daniel's, um, I would say territory, you could say. Well, it's not mud, it's oil. Oil, oil, mud. Yes. So Eli is now like, kind of covered in oil and Daniel just continues to basically beat on Eli. And I have kind of a conspiracy that it's almost like 
Daniel trying to beat God for doing this to H.W. I think he's trying to shift the blame from himself to something like of a higher power or whatnot. Mm, kind yeah. of like when... And Eli is the closest like person to God because he is the pastor. Yes. Uh, he's the closest person to God, a God. I even think that Eli sometimes uh, thinks that he is God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Daniel's just really angry about this and he's just beating... Um, I know that Eli is an adult, but he, he just has like such a kid face. Um, <laughs> he's like beating this kid... And, uh, the, like, oil slicks. It's almost like, uh, at least in terms of the cinematography, it looks kind of like a visual symbol for a fucked up baptism because he is basically being, like, drowned in oil, which is a little bit ironic, but. And I wouldn't say it's a vicious beating, but it is a beating. Yeah. I wouldn't say, like, this isn't a beating where, like, you have a broken rib, but this is a beating where, like, you, you have some significant bruises. Significant bruises, and also your uh, ego is bruised. Your reputation is bruised. Yeah. Because it's not like this is a one-on-one, nobody's seeing this. This is in front of the town, basically. Yes. Because of how things are structured, Eli needs to always kind of seem, like, in favor with God, like, you know, in, like, the chosen one. Mm -hmm. Which, being beaten in the mud is not a very good look, or oil, not a very good look for the chosen one. Daniel uh, is just really frustrated, and you can kind of see his scary side coming out. Kind of like when he's like with Paul, he's like, "Is that okay with you?" Like he dismisses with that entirely, and he's just like looking at Eli and like being like, "I'm going to bury you under. I'm going to bury you underground." Like you know, yeah. His threats come in full force. He is full of rage. You can and you can actually like feel like you can almost feel him holding back, even though. He wants to probably bury Eli right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has an audience. He can't bury Eli. Yes. Otherwise, his business is gone. Now, after this encounter, Eli returns home, sopping in oil, and basically confronts his dad, Abel, for letting the devil in, so to speak. As we mentioned, seeing the fiery burst of oil coming from the land might make Eli think the devil is in, or Daniel, like appearing in church when a tragedy is appearing it's kind of confirming eli's own biases but he also blames paul for inviting the devil in and his dad for enabling it also with uh the kind of encounter here it makes me wonder if when mary gets beat for not praying we know it's the dad abel who mm-hmm. does it however how eli goes around talking to his dad kind of commanding him around or yeah, like it's like almost verbally abusive yeah we can tell that eli's big man of the household mm-hmm. um so it almost makes me question if the father did the beating but the orders came from eli and might go into further of why daniel does not like Eli. Actually, that would kind of make sense because of Eli's so-called piousness. If Mary is being beat by Abel for not praying, but Eli is the one who is very adamant, like, go to church, pray, do all of these things, that would make sense. Right. And uh, therefore, uh, Daniel would feel justified in his beating of Eli in the oil, especially after, you know, H.W. going deaf. Yeah. And... 
from Eli's stance, yeah, maybe the devil's in the town, but he's just scapegoating it on anyone because his power is threatened. There's also something pretty interesting that like Eli says to uh, inside of the uh, home, uh, which you can kind of see a bit of Daniel's meanness inside of him, or maybe just like Eli's narcissism. And he's like, he tells his father, do you think God will save you for being stupid? Which also kind of hints that he views himself as God, like, you know, or that he's also uses in a very manipulative way, especially if he's doing it to his own family. Yeah. So speaking of family, actually, there's like that transition uh, from what we just witnessed to kind of this. We don't know how much time has passed, but probably a decent amount. The timelines throughout this film are kind of janky. All over the place. Yeah. It goes in a chronological order, but sometimes we're informed, sometimes we're not. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we see Daniel going back to the house where he lives, presumably. And there's suddenly just a man that's not from the town standing outside of the house. And when Daniel goes like, hey, like, what's your deal or whatnot? He goes, are you Daniel Plainview? And he's like, yes, that'd be me. And so they get into this conversation of where this guy claims to be his half-brother. Mm-hmm. However, it's a little bit suspect because Daniel doesn't even know he has a half-brother. Yeah, this guy's probably just like, I want your money. And remember, like I was saying, like, you can be like a Vanderbilt person. Just everyone believes you, like, you know. Put on glasses and a hair extension. Yeah, and what kind of convinces Daniel, though is that he does have a letter from his sister, from Daniel's sister, and a few other, like, supporting kind of documents, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. So it does kind of seem legitimate, at least a little bit, but there's something just kind of fishy going on. Right. But in a way, Daniel kind of takes it at face value. This guy who's named Henry tells him, oh, yeah, no, my my father died. I'm your half-brother. I came to find you to reconnect with you, and by showing this letter from a family member, Daniel is kind of swayed a little bit, maybe because he wants some kind of connection for blood ties. I mean, H.W.'s not his real son, but he treats him like blood ties, and so having somebody that actually comes in and says, hey, I am related to you, Daniel almost wants someone close to trust that's not his kid. At the same time, we also learn that Henry is also an oil man, but unsuccessful compared to Daniel himself. Henry says that he had a stretch of very bad time where he was in jail and built railroads in Louisiana before getting into the oil industry. We'll later kind of learn a little bit more about Henry, but this is kind of where he's starting off. I also Mm -hmm. say that, like, Daniel starts to kind of view Henry different now because he can't conversate with H.W. Yeah. He has no one to kind of, I guess, say things plainly. Say things plainly, or he can't really teach his son anymore because they can't communicate. Yeah. Their whole business was based off of, I'll teach you the oil stuff, you be my listening ear and give me some advice. But now that bond is broken, not of, like, either of them's actual fault, but that communication barrier. It's really unfortunate, and you can still see that Daniel still cares about H.W., uh, but he's just a little bit more distant now. Yeah, for sure. And H.W. is kind of having 
a bit of I would I would say a bit of emotional problems right now. He doesn't really listen to Daniel. Well, I mean, I get he he doesn't follow Daniel's directions even when uh, like it's clear like non verbally how to do stuff and whatnot. Uh, we can see that HW is pretty bent out of shape mm-hmm. being deaf. He can't communicate. Like he has frustrations. He can't bring it up because he doesn't know how to yeah. interact with anyone. He's exhibiting a lot more rage. It's hard to get him to explain why he's doing that, but for obvious reasons. So Daniel usually handles this in uh, a way that I would say is kind of common at the time, mm-hmm. actually. But we could see it as a little bit villainous. I, I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not a, as bad as it would be today. Is Daniel uh, usually calms down HW by giving him alcohol. Yeah, mixing it in with his milk or his food. Yes, uh, that way to kind of just like calm him down, which uh, who knows might contribute to the rage. We have no idea. It's <laughs> yeah. another interesting fact that we should bring up that uh, we haven't really talked about so far is uh, Daniel heavily uses alcohol throughout the film, but it's not very like front and center. True. Yeah, it's just kind of a side factor. You see him drinking from a flask at like any stressful point. Yeah, he just pulls out a flask, drinks, goes on his merry way. So uh, a lot of times when dealing with uh, HW, if he needs to calm him down in a certain circumstance, he will obviously give him alcohol and whatnot. Because that's what he knows and what he thinks will help, even though it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's what helps him. Yeah, yeah. I know. A deaf 11-year-old, though. Mm. We're also talking about the time period of where, like, Coca-Cola had cocaine in it, though. (laughs) Right, right. Or, like, I think there used to be prescriptions for, like, angry babies or whatever. It's like, ah, you got ghosts in your blood? Here's some cocaine mixed with fentanyl. Well, not fentanyl. Cocaine mixed with marijuana and some booze, and you put it with your milk. I think 7-Up had lithium in it. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, people were, like, just giving, like, uh, to make babies sleep, they're like, oh, yeah, just make some morphine in it. Like, that'll do it. <laughs> yep. So that's, that's what they know. They're brought up with that. Yeah, some kind of sedative is going to help cure your ails. But I think they kind of know because uh, Daniel still primarily gives, like, just milk to HW mm-hmm. or, you know, regular kid stuff. It's only during these weird moments that he'll spike the drink. Yeah, yeah. And we know that this happens pretty often because when he gives uh, H.W. the drink, even though they can't communicate, he basically tells H.W. to, like, drink this all in one go. Well, he forces him, like, okay, chug, chug, go. Mm-hmm. I think Daniel's kind of seeing, he still loves H.W. He can't work with him anymore, though. Amidst this interpersonal conflict that Daniel is having with his son, H.W., he kind of pivots in a way and begins growing closer with this henry this purported half-brother and henry offers to work for daniel and this is where henry starts kind of filling in the role of hw i would say Mm -hmm. he's now starting to teach henry like the tricks in of the business and whatnot or he's like they're like giving advice like you know a, a wall to bounce ideas off of yeah they're working together they're picking each other's brains i mean obviously daniel's doing most of the legwork but he has a sounding board now that his son can't hear to work with him definitely i would say that uh it's interesting because henry is an adult and he did try making his own wells mm-hmm. but he was just unfortunate with them as well we- also he had the, he was in jail for a stint, so the unfortunate but also life circumstances were different than that for Henry. 
or that for Daniel. Yeah, Daniel was actually able to find that silver that mm-hmm. put him on this path, whereas yeah. I guess Henry just never got that sort of thing. We also kind of figure out that the world's really beaten Henry down at this point. We kind of cut to like a clip of where Daniel is out kind of surveying the land in plans to expand and whatnot, and they're camping. And this is a really in- interesting scene. It's intense, but it's very slow and quiet. And they're just kind of drinking together. And uh, Daniel's trying to get closer to Henry, being all like, okay, what? Uh, let's figure out all my weird quirks. Are you like me? Mm-hmm. And he has this line that I that just really sticks out to me um, during this is uh, Henry's asking all these sort of questions um, and getting uh, deeper and deeper into like HW and uh, like he goes, where's the boy's mother? And Daniel just straight up ignores him um, and goes, <clears throat> I don't want to talk about those things. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. It eventually gets to that. He has this almost underlying envy of people that he's expressing, this hatred. Envy, hatred, mistrust. Um, He feels very alienated just by hearing these words. Wait, Henry or Daniel? Daniel does. Yeah, I think he knows it deep down and he's just kind of admitting it out Mm -hmm. loud to someone he thinks that he can trust. It's his confession. Yes, it's Daniel's way of confession Mm -hmm. rather than maybe someone like Eli's. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting to uh, hear this ambition. Like, it's not just enough to succeed. He wants to be the only one, which also is isolating to himself. So he's already isolated, but he can't stop that isolation because of his goals. Well, it's also interesting. He's sharing these sentiments with another person. Like, that's a very selfish thing to say but also something you'd typically reflect on by yourself but in his act of confessing to henry he's bringing it into the world like basically making it known his drives and his isolation but in a weird ironic manner of confessing that to another person yeah i think it's him expressing that he enjoys the feeling of domination yeah fair and it's really interesting because henry responds to this and a sort of way of he's like basically saying that life has beaten me down so much that I don't I don't care about those kind of things anymore. Mm-hmm. I just want to live and like live well. And Daniel does not take this like sitting lightly. He's like, no, if there's a competition in me, it's in you too. If you're my brother, that shared blood, yeah, mm-hmm. almost like spurring in or hoping to spur that kind of drive with Henry. Maybe that's where he wanted to. And I don't know if we uh, cover it, but I remember at one point, Daniel even mentions that the only reason that he's gotten to where he is is because of his hatred. His hatred for people has actually driven him. I think it's in this monologue that we understand that. Yeah, it's where it's becoming more apparent that uh, he just hates like people. He thinks of them as only bad things coming from them right i mean daniel even says if i had enough money i'd get away from everyone which is another form of motivation for him not only is he in it for money and power but also in the flip side of that he kind of just wants to be a rich hermit or a recluse in a way he wants to get his money get his power so that he can fuck off and not have to deal with people anymore or if he even deals with people maybe like as an npc sort of way Mm. 
where like he doesn't have to take orders mm-hmm. and, I, and i think that's really what like power is like the ability to not have to follow yeah something so he really wants that power and to order people around like he wants to be able to like if someone's like blabbing on like eli just be like shut up and then they do it yeah uh but he wants to be i guess at least an intellectual hermit yeah yeah he he's just really jaded yeah (laughs) he's he really has built up this hatred and maybe he really does believe the only reason he's successful is for the hatred making a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah yeah he like he even says in this monologue, it's a great monologue. It's like probably one of the better monologues in film. Um, that most of the time when he's interacting with people, he's not actually interacting with them. He says that he can know a person just by seeing them, and that he'll already know what's kind of going to come down the pipes. Auto fill the dialogue. They are the NPC. Press A. Press A. Press A. Done. Transaction over. Yeah, I think what he also points out is that because of his hatred filter, when he sees people. He knows how they're going to act, but he only see uh, the first thing he sees is all the bad things that they're going to act on. So he's always looking for the negative first mm-hmm. and then trying to come up with a way to overcome it, I suppose. I guess. And maybe that's something that's learned because after this bonding moment between Henry and Daniel, I, I think H.W. may have learned some of this hatred and mistrust for other people from his adoptive father, because he tries to burn down the house while Henry and Daniel are in it drunkenly sleeping. Yeah, I I also think if we look at the scene, what's happening is uh, Daniel and Henry are sleeping on two uh, opposite sides of a room. But H.W. Uh, pours gasoline in the middle of the household, but more specifically under Henry's bed. Yeah, the trail is leading towards Henry, so he doesn't really want to hurt his father maybe scare him but he sees the competition that henry is posing and he also feels like i don't want to deal with this man this man is basically threatening his role in the family and so hw tries to scare or kill them we can also go back to that earlier dialogue there's obviously a hatred here for trying to harm mm-hmm. but remember daniel saying like you know i don't have to talk to a person i just need to see them well uh, henry yeah hw doesn't have to talk to henry to know what he what's up with him he is young and intuitive and is getting the vibe that something is off which he's obviously inherited from daniel yeah and he may be actually trying to alert daniel by setting this fire that this is not good but it does not end as hw wants obviously henry is very suspicious henry's suspicious i think daniel is suspicious and kind of knows Henry's secret, but just is blatantly lying to himself so that he can have an outlet, especially since he doesn't have HW nearly as much. Mm-hmm. But for poor HW, um, I feel like this really backfired. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, Daniel is kind of starting to see HW as a liability. Um, the teacher isn't helping as much. His sound isn't coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, he's starting fires randomly. Yeah, his rage is manifesting into something more dangerous now. Right, he doesn't see H.W. trying to warn him about Henry. He sees a little boy having emotional problems. Yeah. Um, he even has to chase, uh, H.W. down and, like, pick him up and drag him back. Like, he's not, he doesn't, like, hit him or punish him in any way. He just has to, like, chase after him and, like, set him down in the house and be like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> like, why did you do this? But obviously he can't have that conversation 
So instead of like yelling or anything, it's just a quiet scene of a man like carrying like a 12 or 13 year old, like, you know, back to the cabin. So yeah, obviously something is not working out um, for HW or Daniel here. Something is just not quite clicking. And he doesn't, I don't think Daniel knows like what to do here. I think he's at like his wit's end. I mean, he could learn sign language, but. <laughs> yeah, but I don't even think they know much about like sign language. If I mean, if you're hearing, like, you know, there's no internet. Like who, who signs around, you know, someone, I guess you could figure it out. But Henry really kind of is starting to push Daniel to be all like, hey, we can't go around doing this if hw is gonna keep like fucking shit up yeah i don't think it's ever explicitly shown in the movie any discussion between henry daniel or hw but after things have calmed down with the house fire we see hw and daniel board a train we don't know where they're going we don't know what the intent is all we see is as the train is starting to gear up daniel tells hw he has to speak to a conductor And H.W. waits, and waits, and Daniel exits the train, abandoning H.W. Yeah, this is a pretty hard scene. And what's, I think, pretty important to note here is that Daniel is looking at H.W. and telling him these things, which Daniel at this point in the film doesn't do anymore. He doesn't talk to hw there's no point in talking to hw but this point at this moment he is actually verbalizing even though hw can't see what's going on and in a really good point of acting we see daniel the character shed a single solitary tear as he is having this last or as he is having this final conversation with his son so to speak hey i i have to do this thing Hey, I have to do this thing. I'll be right back. It's the last thing he ever says for a very long time. And one of the few times that Daniel as a character actually shows emotion before leaving. Now, he's not just ditching his son outright. There is a colleague that is on the train. But as far as HW knows, his dad has left him. And the train is going to another station far away. Yeah, it's it's so tragic. Because... HW is not dumb. He's deaf, but he's not dumb. Yeah. So as soon as he can feel like the jolt of the train starting to like go on, um, he starts running immediately for Daniel. And, and then he can see that Daniel is walking off the train as the train's starting to go. And Daniel's colleagues obviously grab HW and are restraining him from jumping off the train mm-hmm. as, uh, HW just screams no over and over again. And Daniel's already given his speech. So he just, looks solemnly into you know the like a ten thousand yard stare just like as the train leaves the station yeah and daniel's just trying to convince himself that like you know this is the right decision and trying not to think about it as um his kid is screaming no at him and his like colleagues are like you know holding him back it's really rough to watch like it for me it's one of the sadder points in the film like it's just the the lack of communication there and the the hopelessness between the two of them it's almost as sad as when like in movies where like people can't take care of a dog anymore and then they just have to uh like go to the side of the road and leave it somewhere it's almost like the movie uh ai by um spielberg right like 
the robot child is just maybe we'll cover AI someday. I have no idea. But uh, in the movie, a child is just randomly abandoned by his mother in the woods. And then you follow the child's perspective. Nah. And it, it, is, it is not good. It is not good, my dude. Children need uh, some, sh- like, you know, parenting. You know, stop abandoning children by the side of the roads. Not, not a good thing. After this heartbreaking encounter between Daniel and H.W., Daniel tries to go back to business as usual. He's meeting with various oil barons, business people, people with land, and he gets an offer to be made a millionaire from one minute to the next. He asks what he would do with himself if he actually was a millionaire. Like, basically, money has fallen out of temptation for him. He doesn't know what else he would do with his life because all he has known is working the fields with his son. And the the business owners essentially suggest, oh, you can take care of your son that little, to their knowledge, he just abandoned. No, I think they do know. So it's almost like rubbing salt in the wound. Yes. I Or I think they're trying to be nice by like, no, like now you don't have to like yeah, send you your boy off to boarding school or whatever. Like yeah. you can go take can care take of him. You can take care of him yourself. And you'll have enough money for all the best doctors in the world, like... I think they're making a legitimately good offer here. Yeah. And Daniel knows he has an ocean of oil under his feet with nowhere to go without someone he can trust like H.W. But he also is conflicted with his workaholism and also the desire for power. Yes. And at this time, maybe we can discuss like a little bit about the business just real fast. So Daniel has multiple wells now on this uh, land, presumably. We only see one drill, of course, but presumably there's more. And um, Union Oil has started, has caught on to all of Daniel's successes. Word's gotten around the country that, you know, there's a lot of oil here. So Union Oil has been buying up all of the lands surrounding um, Daniel's big territory, basically. Yes. So they haven't completely surrounded him. They have Union Oil on one side, and then they have Standard Oil on the other side. But not uh, those two are fighting while Daniel's right in the middle. So there's a bunch of like you know people all around. Union wants to solidify this deal with Daniel so that they can compete better with Standard Oil, and they're giving him the offer of like, hey, you don't have to control everything. Like this is enough. You've already done a ton of work. You should be good to go. Mm-hmm. So during these negotiations, Daniel actually gets really pissed off because he's like, take care of my boy. You do, you, you think I'm not taking care of my boy? Who are you to talk about my boy? Yeah, like, get his name out of your goddamn mouth. <laughs> it's, it's one of those kind of things. And also, he just doesn't want to think about HW. He's already had, like, this abandoning thing, making him go deaf. Uh, HW's huge pain point. Uh, not only does it represent someone he loves, who he's abandoned, but also a point of insecurity, something that he did not do well, mm-hmm. like or something that he feels like he's failed at, whereas he's succeeding in every other aspect. But in this one aspect, he's really fucked up. So he's really touchy on the subject. And Daniel goes from, help my boy, help my boy. Well, I can help him by, like, cutting your throat. Like, he starts going to threats mm-hmm. and being really angry with these people for even mentioning his son. After making these threats and learning about what is happening with Standard and Union Oil, 
Daniel also learns that there is a missing piece of his lamb due to a holdout by a man named Bandy. Daniel's encouraged to just build his oil pipeline around it. It's fine. Don't worry about these people encroaching on your territory. Don't worry about this holdout from this random homesteader guy. But Daniel wants to talk to the landowner by himself. He also learns that his son H.W. is squared away and shouldn't worry about him, but he's worrying about everything everywhere all at once. (laughs) He's worrying about his pipeline. He's worrying about his kid. He's worrying about everyone encroaching on his territory and people kind of knowing the know about what's going on in his interpersonal life, which he doesn't like connecting with other people. Why should they know about him? Precisely. And also, we haven't really discussed it, why he is building a pipeline. It was during these negotiations uh, with Union that he's kind of surrounded and all of his oil is being exported off of trains. Unfortunately, Union also owns the trains. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the only way for Daniel to get his oil out to the marketplace is by building a pipeline in which he can use to connect to standard oil and sell them the oil to export to other locations. Because oil does no good if you have no way to transport said oil or on those ship and also includes shipping prices so he has to do this pipeline and um so he just like decides to go out and survey the land on uh bandy's territory the unceded territory that daniel does not have access to and it's the only point of which he can kind of escape the um circling or the enclosure of competitors if he can get bandy to agree to this pipeline deal, then he can escape and won't have any uh, issues with like exporting and won't be forced to sell. Yeah, he can stay the small businessman that doesn't deal with the middlemen, doesn't deal with the trains. Right, which everyone thinks is crazy, but Daniel's not willing to like let go of that. He's just crazy enough. Yes. Now, the unfortunate thing is that Bandy doesn't really want this pipeline he held out for a reason also <laughs> bandy is like hey daniel come talk to me about this whole oil business at the very beginning however daniel doesn't do that and so when he comes to him talking about this like maybe pipeline um he might not be as receptive to it so he goes over to the place and he talks to i guess a kid or bandy's kid yeah the son or grandson of this bandy landowner bandy is not there yeah but a child is basically and tells him that he's been out for you know a few weeks like hunting or something or doing whatever you do out there goats um doing goats doing goats getting a good goating gotcha goat Uh, (laughs) so uh he's like all right well i'd very much like to speak with him and then they continue to go and like put stakes in Bandy's land to yeah. kind of illustrate where the pipeline would go. Yeah, Daniel and Henry survey this territory like, oh, what could we stake out for our own without actually getting the land consent? High stakes. Yes, high stakes. A bonding montage. Staking your claim. Exactly. Nice brotherly bonding moment on horseback, putting stakes inland that's not actually yours in hopes that one day it'll be yours. Which I feel like today you'd be arrested for trespassing, but hey, that's just me. Yeah, if you say, I peed on it so it's mine, it doesn't really hold up. You just like put stakes in the ground like, it's mine. It's in this moment uh, with Henry and Daniel that they decide to take a little bit of time off, I suppose you could say. Go uh, kind of hang out while they wait for Bandy to return. Uh, so that they can talk, you know, more business. 
They decide to go swimming. And I think this is where Daniel's finally starting to kind of get out of his weird funk that he's kind of been in since HW left. He has a moment to just kind of reprieve, not think about anything, just swim, hang out, think about his life. You know, one of those nice chill days. So yeah, they're hanging out on the beach and that's when Daniel admits to Henry that he used to dream of building a house from his like childhood, um, like near an ocean and to like raise a family with. Basically, Henry's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Did you ever build that house? Like, you know, or will you build that house? Kind of like a response, but like almost like mining for information kind of way. Also goading in a way too. And after this like kind of like conversation about this old house, it starts kind of dawning on uh, Daniel that, you know, this is just too, like this is just really, really suspicious. And um, Henry then brings up, Hey, I know what we should do for the rest of this evening while we wait. We should go get liquored up and go take the women to the peach tree dams. You know, some good old Western recreation. Raunchy good time. Yeah. And I think Daniel's like, okay, let's go do that. Or, you know, we could go do like, you know, uh, dancing instead. We go dancing instead of taking them to the peach tree. Whatever. They're getting their plans sorted. While they're getting their plans sorted... You can kind of just see Daniel's face going into a more of a contemplative mode, but like a really like sour kind of contemplation. Yeah, he doesn't really look pleased with the entire conversation or the proposed next plan of action. In a way, you can kind of see Daniel contemplating how his motivations may or may not be tainted by the introduction of Henry, especially since abandoning H.W., Now, for this point in the movie, in terms of cinematic framing, it's a pretty interesting shot between Daniel and Henry. Daniel is sitting in a lot more active of a stance on the beach in the sun, whereas Henry is covered in shadows. We don't know why, it's just how it is. But it, in a way, it's almost like Daniel is casting a shadow of doubt on his brother, perhaps? who we're not sure is actually his brother, but also maybe that Henry feels like he's in Daniel's shadow too. So they are not seeing eye to eye quite, and they are not feeling it either. Henry and Daniel follow their plan and make their way down to a brothel, where, as Henry essentially wished, they get liquored up and watch people do what they do at brothels. A few hours later, Henry is out of his mind blasted drunk i think it's safe to assume that daniel is also blasted drunk but more with it and henry asked daniel for money which visibly unsettles daniel i think henry's trust has kind of been broken and daniel is feeling more and more paranoia is this guy my real brother now he's asking me for more and more money something seems way off so after this daniel threatens henry with a gun essentially wanting to confirm his origins he asks, what's the name of the farm next to the hill house? And now you fucked up. Yeah. Now you fucked up. You have fucked up now. So Henry is basically caught. He's caught in his lie, and there's no way he can really weasel his way out of it. He doesn't answer Daniel, which confirms Daniel's fears that this guy is a fraud. And Henry, at this moment, like knows he's fucked. Mm-hmm. He can kind of see it in Daniel. He's been around Daniel long enough to know that his threats are not empty. And Daniel has no room for bullshit either. Like, even if Henry wanted to spin another yarn, 
he's yeah. not going to buy it. Daniel's going to see right through him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Daniel's seen through him this entire time. I think Daniel's just done playing the illusion. Yeah. I think he's done dissuading himself from being close to people. Right. I think this quote-unquote Henry was actually just his last attempt to make good with humankind. Yeah, and now that this human has fucked him over, like, he thought it confirms his bias that people are not to be trusted. So, Henry's begging for his life, and Daniel is basically pushing him for information. Mm -hmm. He's like, do I even have a brother? Who the hell are you? Yeah, pistol to the head, like, give me information, or else. Yeah, and so here we learn that uh, Henry was actually friends with Daniel's real brother, Mm -hmm. And that they worked together, and that he used to talk about Daniel a fair amount, which, fair enough, he's the, you know, the wealthy one in the family. Gotta talk about the wealthy one in the family. Be like, oh yeah, me and him are homies. We've never met. Total bros. Tight. Anyway, so they're working together, and Daniel's real brother died of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And I think it was King's City? Yeah. And before he died, he gave him... All of his, like, diaries, either that or he, he stole them. Yeah. yeah, I think it's safer to assume that this fake Henry stole real Henry's diaries, hearing about, oh, the rich brother out west, and basically assumes his identity from there. He also has some letters. That's how he got the letter from the sister, which he introduced himself to, mm-hmm. uh, to Daniel. It's so, like, he was basically able to do identity fraud, which is actually pretty common during this time frame. Yeah. Look into H.H. H. Holmes, mm. uh, America's first prolific serial killer (laughs) he would just like do identity fraud and insurance fraud like it was just another tuesday and i mean what better identity to steal to go to daniel than some like a A brother brother that he's never met met. yeah exactly it's like the perfect crime in a way but the fake henry couldn't keep up the facade well enough yeah and it's also kind of interesting because this hints at daniel having an extended family Mm mm-hmm yeah, and sister, brother, perhaps they had children. Right. And there's no mention of his family or, like, what they do or anything, like, yeah, outside of... He's completely of, disconnected. He's completely disconnected. He's already isolated himself from the family, or the family has isolated him. Yeah. Which, it could be either way. Maybe that's why he has his hatred. Mm, of, like, perhaps, perhaps. You know, wild speculation. Yeah. Speculation corner! Yeah. Well, after Daniel learns this truthful information, fake Henry essentially bargains for his life saying, you can just let me walk out of here. I, I'm your only friend. I don't want anything from you. Just let me go. But instead, Daniel shoots Henry in the head and buries him in the woods in a very unceremonious middle of the night, using a pickaxe to dig a grave, toss you in. Although, despite how calm and collected Daniel seems after just murdering his only friend, essentially, and burying him in the middle of the woods, I think Daniel is plagued by some kind of guilt because he continues to drink away his sorrows until the next morning where he wakes up passed out on the fourth floor. I actually would disagree with you a little bit here. I think that he is drinking and he is kind of teary-eyed, maybe not necessarily crying, but teary-eyed, reading his real brother's journal. Oh, that would make more sense and feeling kind of, um... Swindled out of a real connection. Mm -hmm. And also just like a nostalgia for something that never existed. Right. I mean, also the confirmation that somebody that you kind of trusted, even if you had doubts, was in fact lying. So the confirmation that, like you mentioned, the nostalgia for something you never had. Yeah. And we don't know for sure, but it might be his first murder, which can be kind of 
hard on a fella. Yeah, fair. Fair enough. Not that we know anything about that. So he cries himself to sleep, basically reading some dude's diary, who is presumably his brother, and he wakes up how I often wake up, with people yelling at me. (laughs) Not people yelling at you, cats. They basically crawl up on you and go, please, sir, more loops. We demand food, even though we've been fed maybe an hour ago from an auto-feeder, but it tastes much better from your red right hand. And then I go, no. And I roll to the other side. And then they come to the other side. And I go, fine. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens to Daniel here. Yeah. Um, in a weird roundabout way. So he's still in Bandy's land at this time, still doing the uh, pipeline surveying. Well, he just so happened to have buried fake Henry on Bandy's land. Correct. Anyway, he's woken up to Bandy right in front of his face. Being all like, what's up, bruh? Uh, I see you're camping here. And he has like a whole gang with him. Daniel's like, well, well, this doesn't look great. I'm hungover, sleeping on the side of a road. Sleeping in the forest on the side of a grave. Yeah. And so Bandy is like trying to ask why, like, why didn't you come? And like, you know, earlier... And, like, he's like, well, you know, some babble. Excuses, excuses. I was getting drunk with my fake brother, and then I murdered him. (laughs) Yeah. No, he doesn't disclose that, but he does make excuses why he never returned to negotiate the land with Bandy. Well, I don't think it's the returning. It's the initial offer when he bought the Sunday church. He didn't buy uh, Bandy's land because Bandy wanted him to talk to him personally. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Daniel's like... Okay, great. Uh, can I buy your land and to put a pipeline and we can like do it underground and I'm only going to lease like this tiny, 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 tiny part. Like mm-hmm. I only need like a few inches. Yeah. And, uh, Bandy's like, that sounds like a fine deal, but you need to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, my friend. Oh boy. Now, why would he say this? Kind of at this moment, Bandy pulls out a pistol, a very familiar looking pistol. It's Daniel's pistol. That he used to kill Henry. So Bandy knows what's up. Bandy knows what's up. He is very fond of the church. Not as fond as Eli, you can say. No, of course, but but he is a devout member. Yes. Of the third revelation specifically. Yes. So he tells Daniel that the only way to salvation and the only way to get what he wants Mm -hmm. is to basically go to the church and be baptized. By Eli. By Eli. Sounds like a really fun party. And of course, Daniel's like, oh, no, 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 that's gonna, uh, I'll, I'll give you twice the price. He throws money at the problem to try and fix it, and Bandy's like, nope, nope. I mean, I mean, I'd do the same. <laughs> Only Jesus can save you. Uh, what about 7K? <laughs> Jesus doesn't care about your money, but Eli does. Honestly. <laughs> If Eli was there, it would have gone to, like, second round, done, finished. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) fair enough. Now, of course, as you mentioned, Bandy knows Daniel has murdered Henry, but kind of just blows that off. I feel like he's essentially doing Eli's bidding in a way, trying to keep peace with the town between oil and God, but also just kind of being a cuck for the church. And he uses this to force Daniel's hand to be under Eli's control. He's using the information, oh, I know you murdered somebody and that you want my land, but... You know, Daddy Eli wants you part of his flock. It's like religious blackmailing. Yeah, exactly. So what's a guy going to do? He's going to go through with it. Either that or defenestrate someone. 
That would be a lot more entertaining. Ooh, you could put Eli up on top of the drill and hope that another oil burst happens and send that bitch flying. <laughs> that would be great. Uh... So in an act of rebirth and transformation, in the spiritual sense, but also because Daniel basically gives up power for a short time, he accepts Vandy's offer. He wants that land, he follows him to church, where essentially Daniel debases himself in front of of not only the church, but the community of this town he's working in. Eli has him go up on his knees in front of the town, confessing his sins. Eli is also kind of spinning yarn too, like, oh yes, you are corrupt, you have brought our town great wealth and stuff, but you've also like fucked around with the hoes, and you've been a sinner, and you've been bad, so let's confess to everyone. Yeah, you did all these bad things, but you also abandoned your boy. And he makes Daniel say that over and over and throughout this entire scene obviously we can tell daniel is not giving a shit you know he's like playing the role half-heartedly to get it done to get bandy's land but when eli forces him to say you've abandoned your son we actually see this kind of emotionally breaks down daniel which i think is where he has a bit of that transformation he acknowledges what his business has done to his son and then also what he has done to his son when he goes i've abandoned my child and also he kind of it really solidifies that uh hw is his real only family yeah blood or not and also of course daniel does this this is hugely like i wouldn't say embarrassing i think it goes beyond embarrassing Mm -hmm. i think it's like kind of like a shame almost yeah no he is being publicly shamed by basically his rival in a way in front of the town that he has built up it's the most base humiliation like And it's kind of a foil to uh, Daniel slapping Eli into the oil. Exactly, exactly. Oh, you made me baptized by your God? I'm going to baptize you with mine. It's it's payback. Yeah, and if we know anything about Daniel, he's persistent. Mm -hmm. So, small emotional breakdown, having to go to church, you know, all this. He's going to do it if that's what it takes to get his pipeline. Yeah, yeah. And he goes through with it like a champ. Like a champ. Daniel gets his pipeline and is able to avoid Union Oil's encirclement. And he's able to go like straight out through Bandy's land. And now he has the transportation he needs. He doesn't have to rely on the railroads. He can still keep his oil well, like drilling and whatnot. And then he can also probably make a deal with Standard Oil instead of Union Oil. Yes. To make a lot more money. It also finally allows him that last piece in this territory, like the the missing piece in your... uh, Jigsaw puzzle? In your jigsaw puzzle, or I was thinking like when you finally conquer a continent and risk or something. Like, he has his territory, he's staked his claim, he has the easy out for his oil, everything's gonna go a lot smoother from here on out. Ah, so he's like a plus two. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of like Australia. (laughs) One could say, one could say. After having this nice breakthrough and transformation, at least in terms of his business, Daniel is also reunited with H.W., who has returned from boarding school. And we see it's it's weird framing because it's shot so far away from their actual embrace, but we can hear Daniel as he's hugging H.W. after not seeing him for who knows how long. He says, that does me good. Welcome home, son. Basically... In the most genuine way of, you are my son, I have missed you, I'm sorry I left you. And we can tell, based on Daniel's subtext, that he kind of wants to repent and fix things with H.W. You know what's the saddest thing? H.W. can't hear a word of this. No, no, no. 
He just like, hello, father, you are hugging me. And I think rightfully pissed off. I mean, he kind of was abandoned on a train with some weird person left by his father. And so H.W. tries to beat Daniel up, rightfully so. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me a bit of when he was running after setting the fire. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. still a little bit of that rage in there. And I I think it's justifiable rage. Yeah. It's not like some troubled teen rage. It's, you know, what the fuck, Daniel? Yeah, I'm deaf and you ditched me. All right, let me ask you a question then. Do you think that he brings H.W. like home immediately because of the public shaming or because he finally recognizes H.W. as his only family member and he can't give up on him even though he might cause troubles? And or do you think he just brings him back because the pipeline's finished and he knows that he won't have to do as much business dealings anymore? It might be a factor of all three of those things, to be fair, because in the scene, the public shaming scene, we do see that a chord is actually struck within Daniel that he has abandoned his boy. I think maybe the the family aspect is a little bit less so. I mean, obviously, killing Henry and learning that he was a liar hurt. But I, I think it's more of admitting that he abandoned his son and realizing that. And then the pipeline just so happening to have been finished. The business factor does come into play. But I think it's it's mostly the shaming, at least how I see it. Mm, like, mm. He, he gave off genuine guilt and remorse for leaving HW. I mean, you could see just, like, the remorse, like a few seconds after he left HW. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the impact just really settles in when he's, like, yelling in the uh, church, in the baptism. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before, you know, getting jerked around by Eli. Right. Daniel starts to, I guess, try to amend things. uh, Or mend things, not amend. He's trying to pass bills now? No. (laughs) (laughs) He's uh, trying to mend things, and so he hires a teacher to help HW. Um, and this guy is like a specialist, I would say, in the deaf community, uh, deaf communication, all sort of that fun stuff. Whereas I think the last uh, tutor did not. Yeah. And had no idea. But uh, apparently this guy is from like a long ways away. I think it was like San Francisco yeah, or something that, like that. I think that's correct. And he actually knows sign language. So his main goal is to teach HW how to properly communicate now. Yeah. And then once HW can properly communicate, Daniel basically wants him to get back into the business. Mm-hmm. Replace Henry, who replaced HW's former <laughs> position. Do so, the old switcheroo. Yeah. And I would say that that's like his right-hand man and then his like left-hand man. I don't know if we ever get his name. No. We don't? I don't think so. Anyway, there's a left-hand man. He's cool. He seems pretty chill in the movies. He was the one that went with H.W. when H.W. was left on the train, right? Yeah, and he's also there with Paul uh, during the Paul meeting. Yeah. So, mysterious left-hand man, unnamed, but helps out, but isn't family. Yeah. After trying to basically start slowly getting H.W. back into the business, Daniel takes him to a lunch at a fancy restaurant where he orders big, juicy, American-grade steaks, whiskey, and milk. America! And as- Fuck yeah! As he- America! May I speak, America? I will allow it. (laughs) You've passed the amendment. Anyway, they are seated at this fancy restaurant together, and they are confronted by other oil men, uh, notably a man named Tilford, who comes up and is being relatively polite, I guess. He says hello to Daniel, and then very obnoxiously, loudly says hello to H.W., like a, like a true American. They don't understand you, just speak louder. <laughs> oh, you're deaf? Can you hear me now? Uh, it doesn't help. Anyway. Fusroda! 
But underhandedly, he kind of chides Daniel for how he's raised his family. I think word has gotten around the region, I mean, especially with the public shaming, that Daniel ditched his kid for a little bit and people are giving him the side eye. And Daniel basically tries to humiliate Tilford after this. I think also that Tilford already knows. Mm -hmm. Because remember we covered when Union was threatening Daniel and they were talking about, like, get my boy's goddamn name out of your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they already knew um, and whatnot. And now they're seeing he's back and they're like, "Uh." And he's polite, but he's really condescending. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's, like, obviously in some type of weird, schmoozy lunch meeting kind of thing. Yeah, there's, like, 12 other guys in the same suit talking oil with their American steaks. America! And I think that really pisses off Daniel. Yeah, it does. Like I mentioned, he tries to humiliate Tilford because he has been humiliated in a way. Uh, But he also reveals that, oh, now I don't have to make dealings with you big oil men because I have my fancy schmancy pipeline. And then, uh, in an interesting piece of filmmaking, it actually goes briefly into HW's kind of point of view. Yeah. But it doesn't switch the camera, but you can tell it's HW because the sound just so, like, slowly goes silent. Mm-hmm. So, you kind of get the perspective. HW is surrounded by all these fancy people. He can tell based on the context of or what's around him, you know, this is probably business business, but... I have no idea what they're saying. I don't know what they're saying to me, about me, about my father. And it's, I think the fact that the audio fades out really shows HW is feeling this isolation from people as well, maybe learned from his father, and also as a side effect of his loss of hearing. Yes. I would say that he's very disengaged. Mm -hmm. Almost like listless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who could blame the kid, man? (laughs) Yeah. But hey- H.W. finally begins to learn sign language. Yeah. So it's going to be a huge step. Exactly. Exactly. And a factor for his independence, not only just as a kid, but also from Daniel. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So as H.W.'s uh, learning sign language, he still kind of resents not being able to hear. Obviously, it's pretty shitty. And he knows that, like, you know, Daniel did it. And also that Daniel just, like, left him there uh, like on the thing to go to the oil rig. And then Daniel leaves him again on the train, mm-hmm. and he's like, "What is there going to be a third time?" There's, yeah, there's a lot of resentment. He's like, "You should pick me up when it's convenient, and then drop me off when, like, you know, it's like good for you." Like, I'm just, yeah, this isn't a true fatherly bond. I'm basically like a piece of baggage for you in a way. Mm-hmm. The fashion child of the week, <sighs> but I, I do think that Daniel, like deep down, has good intentions, but. Fidel fucked up. Yeah, yeah. He, his reputation is being tarnished as a father, as a businessman. We also learn at this time that Eli received his final sum of money from Daniel to finish his church renovations, to bolster the church community, something like that. Daniel paid off whatever else he owed to Eli slash Paul. And we see a little scene of him saying goodbye to his mother because Eli's leaving town to go on a mission. You know, good old white savior complex. Go somewhere and try and spread Jesus to fix the problems. And he's using these funds that he acquired from Daniel as like a rebrand. Essentially, the little slimy weasel wants to become big, nice mission savior. And I I think it's just all for a show. Flash forward many years into 1927. That was fast. 
Yeah. And we open up to a scene of H.W., now a man. And he is currently getting married. To whom, you may ask? To Mary. (laughs) There's a tongue twister in there somewhere. Manly man getting married to Mary. Yes. So H.W. is getting married to Mary, who is the youngest sister of Eli. And H.W.'s childhood sweetheart. And H.W.'s childhood sweetheart. And what's even cuter is right before this scene, uh, there's a, a little like interlude of H.W. kind of integrating back into uh, Daniel's sphere, I guess you could say, or on the Sunday ranch. Yeah. And while H.W. can use some basic sign language at this point, mm-hmm. Mary has no idea what he's saying. And it's, it's abundantly clear. It looks like she's willing to learn, though. Yeah, she just kind of follows him wherever he goes, kind of not knowing. Mm -hmm. And then in this scene of the marriage, we see them giving their vows to each other by signing. Yeah, it's actually pretty sweet. It's it's adorable. And they look so genuinely happy. But there's one thing that appears to be missing from this scene. One person, rather. Hmm, who could it be? Why, Daniel, of course. But also, to be fair, the Sundays aren't there either. Yeah. So it's a modern church, and it's not Eli's little shed. Yeah, exactly. And the the nasty family members aren't involved in it anyway. It's a very intimate, like, actually nice ceremony. Yeah. You don't want your, like, rich, drunk, angry, crazy dad ruining your wedding. Or your abusive dad and, like, religious zealot brother, either. Who would probably want to officiate the wedding. Yeah, yeah, and make it about himself rather than them. Anyway, after we see this very nice but short marriage ceremony, it's an immediate cut to this big fancy house where Daniel is sitting alone and drunk, shooting guns by himself in the hallway of his own mansion. I I guess you could presume this is at the same time that the marriage is going on or later, but we know that he is alone. His son is doing well with love and starting his own family, but Daniel is kind of... I think it's safe to assume that he has reached his peak as a businessman now that he's just living in his mansion, but he is isolated like he wanted to be. He has made it as an oil king, but... At least, to me, he seemed personally dissatisfied and palpably alone. I don't know if dissatisfied is the word I would use. I would probably say unsatisfied. Mm. There's still something missing. Mm -hmm. There's something not quite complete. Well, also, the fact that we're seeing him finally in a house, not on an oil rig or oil derrick or trying to develop something. He mentioned earlier in his discussion with Tilford and the big oil men, oh, well, what am I going to do after I've made so much money with oil? You can tell that he, in that discussion, wanted to continue doing oil because that's what he knows. Now we see he's not doing oil, so that is the gap that's missing from him, I would say. And he's also dressed differently than he how he is in, like, the majority of the film. Yeah, he's in, like, a cozy old man sweater. Yeah, like, he's gotten rid of the suits, he's gotten rid of, like, the field outfits Mm -hmm. and now it's just like cardigans yeah exactly so he's living in a life of comfort but there's definitely a sense of discomfort likely because he is not doing what he has done his entire life i would say that he is actually pretty satisfied with this living condition but he finally gets that one piece and we'll get to that one piece that completes the puzzle Mm -hmm. but i can see your side as well 
He's meant to be out there. He's meant to die on an oil rig. Like he, that's where he will die. Like I can see that kind yeah. of like sentiment, or in the well where it all started, kind of deal. Yeah, like kind of full circle. Yeah, but obviously that's not going to happen because Daniel will probably just send his manservant to go fetch the drill for him or something. Mm-hmm. Something wild. It's rich people stuff. H.W. now a married man. I think is coming to the point in his life where he's trying to, I guess, define himself. And assert his autonomy apart from Daniel. Yes. We also see that, like, Daniel's not at the wedding, neither are the Sundays. But there's also a few other hints that he wants to be more autonomous. And so he goes and bites the bullet, visits Daniel. He walks into the house... Walking over shattered glass. Seeing the chaos that Daniel has left in his drunken rage. Working from home. Isolated, basically. Save for the few oil men and, like, the left-hand man that are with Daniel. Imagine that, uh, what do you call it? Boop, 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 boop. Call. Be like, oh, I'm just in my underwear. Shooting that stuff. Boop, 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 boop. I can't think of what that's called. Telegram? Yeah, telegram. Ha ha. Anyway, Daniel is, like, sitting in his study. Surrounded by his cronies, essentially, and facing off with his son, almost. Yeah, they're sitting uh, on either ends of the desk, and all these other men are kind of standing around them, except for the translator. And the translator's there to basically communicate between uh, sign language and spoken language. Of course. HW asks to basically discuss some private matters and ask for the other oil associates to leave. And Daniel says, like, basically he, he dismisses him. Be yeah. like, you can't speak, so why don't you flap your hands around and tell me where you've been? Or do you think I don't know? I think it's also pretty telling that Daniel never really took accountability, at least for being a partial cause for HW's deafness, solely because of the fact that he didn't even care to learn sign language to communicate with his son. That's a little bit of an aside, but like him saying, why don't you flap your hands around, and the translator having to be there, it's just kind of hmm, interesting that this communication gap happened between the two of you, but you never fostered, like, trying to bridge that gap yourself as the father. Yeah, I think it is kind of interesting. Maybe Daniel just kind of relied heavily on the translators. Yeah. And was like, well, I'm always going to have, like, kind of, like, this base around to... Yeah, fair enough. But I think what's interesting here is Daniel saying, or do you think I don't know? Which, don't know about what... It's at this moment that... H.W. basically tells him that he's going to strike off on his own. He says that he loves Daniel, but H.W. himself also loves the work. Like you mentioned, he wants to be out in the dirt, in the grime, in the sun, not in your home office. So H.W. announces that he is going to move with his new wife to Mexico. And Mexico! Yeah, yeah, lots He's basically going to start his own company there, away from Daniel, but taking what he has learned basically growing up in the oil industry and spread his wings to leave his father and make some kind of change of his life. But of course, Daniel sees this as not only a business threat, but also a misstep. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's really heartbreaking, but HW kind of signs, I'd rather keep you as my father than as my partner, Mm -hmm. which is a very healthy way to set boundaries. Right, right. Like, keep the family alive but you know i've surpassed my mentor in a way i need to keep doing my own thing like i think that's a fair thing to say i think it's absolutely fair to say and it's kind of unfortunate because daniel just 
mocks him basically yeah daniel's not in a position he's not in a place where he's willing to listen to anything his son has to say essentially he spins it back towards hw saying that he's killing the family and also the image of his son which is now being kind of corrupted into what he says is no you're nothing but competition to me now Mm -hmm. he is just like dismissing him outright he's making fun of the interpreter the interpreter this entire time like being all like, what, what the heck is this guy doing here? He doesn't respect H.W. in any way. And yeah, he doesn't care about the family aspect. Even though H.W. says, I'd rather keep you as my father, Daniel doesn't care. He now just sees his son as nothing but a threat. And in this moment, he reveals the truth about H.W.'s upbringing. That he is not his biological son. He's just the kid of some guy that was working at one of the derricks with Daniel who died. I would say that this is really kind of Daniel's event horizon. Yeah, which is kind of surprising. Like, you wouldn't think being mean to your son as an event horizon, but let's explain why. Yeah, this could be, like, basically the third time that he abandons HW. Mm-hmm. Now, I have two theories on this, but we'll, we'll save it for once we get through the end of the scene. Okay. So Daniel basically says to HW, You're lower than a bastard. A bastard from a basket! Basically, he was trying to tell H.W. that he was just a pawn and, like, a heartbreaking disownment. H.W. responds that he is, like, glad that he has no part of Daniel inside of him. Which Daniel mentions, like, you know, you're not my son because you don't have what drives me inside of you. Mm -hmm. Not only the blood, but the drive. And obviously H.W. does have the drive. It's just different and, like, a lot less cold-hearted than what Daniel has. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, too, because we know that this discussion of the drive or, like, the ambition inside of him kind of only comes up when he's really close to people. Yeah, because he also brought up the drive and the ambition when he was having that conversation with Henry way back when. Oh, if it's in me, it's in you. Not the blood, the drive. It makes me kind of question if, like, the drive is almost looking for connection itself, but can't find anything Yeah, the shared ambition. Like, we have a similar goal. We have a similar means of pursuing said goal. What were your two theories about uh, him revealing to H.W. the truth about his upbringing? So, the first, like, theory is just, like, the straightforward one. The one that, like, uh, I just kind of, like, gave. Like, you know, it's just competition. He's Mm -hmm. basically senile, cynical is disenfranchised with all of humanity and is happy being alone, like hermit recluse. Yeah. And the, like one of the final ties he has to remove is HW as he further like closes out the world. Yeah. He's already seen HW as some kind of liability. He's like, it'll be safer just to remove him outright. And then the second theory, which I think uh, is a little bit more complex is that I think that Daniel is doing, like, the shittiest version of tough love. Mm-hmm. So here's why I say it, is we mentioned that, or we, we know that Daniel gets a lot of his drive from hatred, hatred of people, wanting to become the recluse, the hermit, mm-hmm. and whatnot. I wonder if revealing this information to H.W. just as he's starting a new company... Oh, is trying to instill that hatred for his success? Yes, He's Ah. trying to instill what's part of him. So the emotional manipulation aspect to continue him pursuing that ambitious drive. Yeah, basically being all like, 
Fuck you, Dad! Yeah, like, yeah. look how successful I am now. And then, like him, you're like, I didn't need you anyway. Oh, I'm proud of you, son. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. I think that's a fair thought. I think it's probably both of them. You know, like there's the, the what he is saying, and then the subtext, perhaps. Like, even though it's horrible and it's like makes no sense, but it makes sense to Daniel. Yeah, like, if you're Daniel. Yeah, that's how he knows to communicate. But I, I still would say this is an event horizon as part of. His villainy of, like you mentioned, the third time he has abandoned his child. Yeah, it might be for tough love, but he didn't have to do HW like that. Yeah, and HW is probably the last or the closest person that he trusts in this mm-hmm. entire world. So as he cuts off HW, he also cuts off his his ties to humanity at this point. Yes. So I think that's why it's the event horizon. There, there's no coming back, nope. I, I think, from this. Like, he's basically just sabotaged himself and then if you look at like maybe the instilling rage or hatred kind of thing maybe it was worth it because daniel's already getting old he doesn't look like he has much longer he's just kind of like limping around everywhere more so than usual Mm -hmm. his injuries are catching up to him there's not much pep in his stuff no 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 well at an undetermined time later daniel's drinking in his bowling alley like we all do. You know, Thursday night bowling and Friday morning bowling. Anyway, Daniel's manservant comes in and tells him that he basically has a visitor. Ooh. And Daniel is like, okay, whatever. And he continues to say where uh, he's at, which is in the middle of the gutter in the bowling alley with a breakfast plate next to him and like a bottle of whiskey i was gonna say the breakfast plate you mean the bottle of whiskey yeah there's a few bottles around him he's just literally in the gutter but of a bowling alley passed out drunk yeah yeah send him in whoever i don't give a fuck yeah he's almost impossible to wake up and who else is it but eli Uh, the little weasel that comes crawling back and i find it kind of funny because even though daniel has cut everyone out there's always one person that's going to keep coming back, and it is Eli. We learned that after he went off to do his mission trip, after getting his funds and securing his church, that he basically became a televangelist. Uh. He got a stint in radio and is trying to proselytize the word of God around the world. He thinks he's some big hotshot with fancy clothes and like a chunky rosary, but which, which I don't think you're supposed to wear, are you? Uh, you're supposed to use it for prayer, but he's wearing it like bling. Like, look at me, I got God on my side. But the reason that he's come crawling back to Daniel, there, there's something else going on. Wait, wait, wait. So he's working in radio, and radio is really new at this time. Yeah. So this could be like a huge opportunity. I mean, we saw what one man could do with the radio, mm-hmm. and that's create an entire war. <laughs> So, I think it's kind of uh, interesting, and I would like to take a moment to try and replicate this endeavor. And now for a word from our sponsors. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, gather round, prepare to be utterly mesmerized. Step right up and tune your dial to the divine frequencies of Reverend Eli Sunday's miraculous radio revival. Friends, do you crave salvation? Well, rejoice, for the heavens have descended upon the airwaves, 
in this electrifying extravaganza on Electric Avenue, we witness the power of faith as Reverend Eli, the chosen messenger, leads you on a journey of redemption. Marvel at the awe-inspiring sermons that will shake your very soul. Join the Church of the Third Revelation as we cast away the shadows of doubt, arthritis, and corrupt oil men and bask in the glorious light of the Lord's redemption. Don't miss this chance to experience the miraculous. And if you cannot make it, friends, fret not. For God, in all his glory, has given me the ability to reach your ears today. And with this blessing, we beg you to send your tithe to 1312 Idolon Avenue, Little Boston, California, 91874. To help those in need, and those ignorant of his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7 For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly. The more you give, the more you shall receive from the Holy Spirit. Tune in and let the Spirit of the Divine Old God wash over you. Hallelujah and Amen. And we're back. Isn't the radio such a wonderful and powerful thing? If that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will. So now that Eli has crawled his way back into Daniel's life, he sits down and kind of tries schmoozing Daniel, saying, oh, we're such old friends with so much time. So much time. But with such contempt. And Eli, in a way, offers an olive branch to Daniel. Out of the kindness of his heart? The kindness and the, the love of God, the goodness of his heart. He asks Daniel to drill in Little Boston on behalf of Eli's new church. Now, of course... Dealings with Eli never really go according to plan when it comes to oil and God. So Daniel does agree in a way, saying, I'd be willing to work for you, but there is one condition to this work. I'd like you to tell me that you are and have been a false prophet and that God is a superstition. God is a superstition! Basically spinning it right back on his head. We've had the baptism in oil. We've had Daniel being baptized in the church and admitting to his sins. Now he wants that full circle of Eli admitting to his sins. Right, by committing a sin. (laughs) You know, that's how the devil works. It's plain and simple. It's right there in the contract. Just sign it. In blood. (laughs) Or oil. Anyway, Daniel basically forces Eli to debase himself, basically admit what he actually is, and to, like, remove the mask a little bit. I am a false prophet! When the mask comes off, we see that, basically, Eli is desperate. He really needs, he's like, okay, I can't, I can't do, I mean, that, that, that's just a lie. I can't do that. I can't do that, Daniel. Um, but Daniel basically eventually forces him into it being like well if you want this money and then he's like i have i've made so like all these investments and all these investments are gonna go bad unless daniel and he mentions some type of crash here so i think this is around black tuesday in the 1930s yeah or 1920s he admits that his investments are broke and he does say that they went under and there's a panic in the economy. So I think it's it's safe to assume that Black Tuesday, it's around this time before the Great Depression happens. 
So Eli coming to Daniel is desperate for that last bit of money and power because everything is going sour. Even though he's got the bling and he's got God on his side, things are not actually working out for Eli. And eventually he's forced to say it. I'm a false prophet. God is a superstition. What? I can't hear you, Eli! I am a false prophet and God is a superstition! And then Daniel goes, oh, that was very nice. Also, by the way, no. Yeah, he mentions that the areas that Eli had brought up for potential drilling, they're already taken. They've already been drilled. It's not worth Daniel's time. And he was basically just kind of manipulating Eli for his own shits and giggles. Oh, I want to see you squirm like you made me squirm. Basically, how Daniel explains this is that he basically just tells Eli that he's dumb. Like he's a fucking idiot. (laughs) Yeah. He goes, hey, if you surround, if there's a giant lake underneath and I'm all around your lake, I don't need to be in the center of your lake to drain your lake out. Mm-hmm. I just need to, you know, go around it. Yeah. If I take my straw and I extend it all the way to your milkshake, you know, the whole spiel, the famous monologue. <laughs> After calling Eli an idiot, Daniel basically says, Paul was the chosen one, not Eli. Because it was Paul that came to him and knowing what was under the Sunday land, asking Daniel to drill for it. Basically, Daniel informs Eli that Paul is actually now also a successful oil man. And that after that he gave Paul $10,000 and he was able to transform that $10,000 into a small amount of uh, drilling sites. Yeah, and is now making around 5 k a week, just like Daniel was at the beginning of his own journey. Now, here is... Conspiracy corner! <laughs> Conspiracy corner! So, this is interesting because we know at the beginning of the film that Paul was only given $500 for the information about the Sunday yep. Ranch. But here, we hear Daniel saying that he gave Paul $10,000. Now, okay, maybe this is just him trying to rub in Eli's face, like, how much money that Paul got for being the smarter brother mm-hmm. or whatever. That's, the chosen one. The chosen one. I mean, that's the normal take. But when you're on the conspiracy, who else got $10,000 in investment? Yeah, we heard that there was a sum of money given to Eli to start his church. And before he went off to be a televangelist, he got an extra 5 k to finish the job. Hmm. It sounds hmm. like it might add up to ten k going towards a certain Sunday boy. Yeah, and also... What kind of investments does this church boy have? What is he doing in investing? He Shouldn't he be investing in God he invested, and his herd, his sheep or something? He invested in his fashion sense. That rosary costed <laughs> 10K. Yeah, I guess radios aren't cheap back then, eh? So, anyway. Just, just a little conspiracy theory. Paul, Eli, same guy? Same guy? Yeah, same guy. Write us if you agree. Do you think Paul and Eli are the same person? Email committee at worlddomination.ca. Anyway, after making fun of Eli and telling him about Paul's success and how much of a sniveling ass Eli is, Daniel starts like throwing like pins at him. Oh kind yeah, it gets it gets heated. Yeah, it gets very, very Daniel's heated. Daniel's rage has really like brimmed to the top. He is fed up with Eli coming, crawling back, complaining, trying to shove God down his throat and his moral superiority. Daniel is done with Eli. And this isn't, like, with the baptism of, like, slapping him into the mud and, like, you know, like, beating him. No, 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 no. This looks like rage, like, filled to kill. 
Yes, yes. And no one's around to stop it. And Eli is such a weak pussy bitch, he is not able to defend himself against Daniel's rage. And I think this is really interesting because it is rage, but I don't think it's coming from a place of anger like it was coming from when H.W. was deafened. Yeah. I think it's actually coming from a point of domination. Well, yeah. I think he's trying, like, he's basically saying the oil has won over God. The old gods are dead. The old gods are dead. What are you going to do about it? They were too stupid to keep living. Yeah, yeah. Especially if, like we mentioned earlier, Eli sees himself as an old god in a way. So Daniel is affirming, your old god is dead, you are going to be. They just didn't keep up with the times. We know Eli tries to keep up with the times, Mm -hmm. but the fundamental idea just doesn't seem to be holding as much oil. Yes. (laughs) As Daniel is throwing these pins at him, he's slowly getting closer, telling him uh, all of his failures telling him that like he is the righteous one that he is the third revelation and uh this entire time uh eli is just like whimper yelling and like being like we're brothers daniel please daniel i'm your only friend no i know you daniel you're not like this so yeah and he gets closer and then finally he gets eli to trip and uh daniel then goes over to him takes a pin puts it in his hand and begins to bash his brains in. Oh, for Christ's sake, why? Eh? Why? Why? Because we fucking can! Because we fucking can! And if we can, we do. And Daniel did. Daniel sits in his own personal, destroyed bowling alley, now alone, with his true rival Eli finally vanquished, and the old god finally killed. Basically, his footman house employee comes down, and kind of just evaluates the the state of the union not saying anything kind of like oh daniel just killed a guy this is fine and daniel just says i'm finished and the movie promptly ends with a flourish of strings from brahms and that's the end of the film but i would like to make a like a quick note but i think it's a pretty important like good note when daniel abandons hw for the third time and final time. And final time. He's basically abandoning humanity. Like, the last of his humanity. Right. Further isolating himself. He's already isolated. Now he's isolated from the only person he actually could ever trust. Precisely. And I think that the killing of Eli is him cutting himself off from God. Yeah. Fair. Or at least an old God. Although, because we don't see him really being active in the oil industry, maybe he's also cut himself off from the new god, too. Maybe he's finally alone, as he always wished. He's finished. Exactly. And I would say that, like, if you argue, like, he's already killed a man, so he's already cut himself off from God or something like that. I mean, yeah, but also Eli is supposed to be, like, the representation of, like, at least like an old god or a god or mm-hmm. uh, a false scammer or a false prophet. And I think it's just like a very direct way and one that he doesn't feel guilty about at all. No, no. It's what ends his journey and he seems relieved about it. He finally seems satisfied. That was the missing piece. That was the missing piece. A blood-stained bowling alley. Perfect for your next interior design. Aesthetic. Absolutely. So, do you want to 
cover more of the themes? Maybe we should go into like an analysis or maybe a legacy? Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's something missing. At least we've covered the plot of the film, but we don't really know what happens with Daniel's legacy thereafter. And I don't think we ever truly will. We can postulate what happens with HW, what happens with Daniel's business. But I think there is a legacy in terms of oil as an industry and people like Daniel who actually existed. Specifically during this time period, you would have basically what some people would call captains of industry, but are more colloquially known in uh, America as robber barons. You can kind of recognize these people in our modern times, since we're kind of going through another Gilded Age. An we were age past the Gilded Age. I thought we were past that. Well, you, you would think, you would think, but no, no. Uh, in fact, it's worse than the Gilded Age by numbers in our modern times uh, yeah. with wealth disparity and everything like that. I mean, better living conditions and working conditions. I'm not going to go back to 1911 and, yeah. you know. Working a well. Yeah. I mean, you could just pretend to be anyone back then. <laughs> no one was updating their Facebook posts. I mean, no one's updating the Facebook post now, but still. Yeah. So these guys kind of like create either a monopoly or a duopoly or an oligopoly. Basically kind of like a cartel where they control one resource and then they exploit that resource to its maximum. You would uh, know some of the robber barons uh, back in the day, kind of like Cornelius Vanderbilt, Carnegie... Uh, What's his first name? You know Carnegie. Rockefeller. And J.P. Morgan. Not the bank. The guy. So these people were all like robber barons who massed their wealth through like a laissez-faire marketplace. And so a bunch of stuff that they were doing back then would be obviously illegal today. But today we just get around it with stuff like Bitcoin. (laughs) uh, And all sorts of fun uh, shenanigans, you could say. Mm. Now, a lot of these people came from, like, wealthy backgrounds, obviously, to get their start. Uh, like, a lot of also, like, millionaires and billionaires in our current age. Right. But what was also interesting about this time is you did have some people who actually worked their way from the bottom all the way to the top. And then the funny thing is, is when they were at the top, they made sure that that would never happen again. Entrenching themselves in Entrenching royalty. In fact, there was... Uh, I think the formation of police actually happened during this time because the United States actually did not have a uh, police state at this time. It was only Pinkerton's, which was a private investigation company that was actually like hired by like uh, Carnegie to break unions. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so and then eventually it became like so bad that uh, the government started supporting the Pinkertons and eventually the Pinkertons would kind of become the United States' first police. Did they turn a different shade of pink? <laughs> the color of pigs? Cops? Pigs? Oh, oh my god. Sorry, that that was a whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, there's a ton to unpack here, and I think what's interesting is we focus on a lot of these big figures, but we don't focus on more of the Daniel Plainviews. Right. At least in in terms of history, we focus on the robber bands, the royalty. But this movie, Daniel, is a very small-scale oil man. And you don't hear a lot of those stories, at least in terms of historical aspect. 
There's actually a fair amount of those, and they're still robber barons because Daniel Plainview is obviously way wealthier than yeah. most people at the time. But eventually, they kind of like fell to pieces as more regulation against the big guys came down, right. trying to uh, break trust or monopolies, yeah. as well as the world wars would start, as well as the uh, financial crash of the 1930s, which would kind of like all those factors coming together, kind of demolish uh, what was left of the Daniel Plainviews. Right. Okay, fair. It, it shattered them to pieces. And eventually, when regulations would not be as strict, or they found a way to get around them, then you would have the big companies going around buying all of them up. So you'd have Rockefeller buying up your Daniel mm-hmm. Plainviews. So I guess one could theorize if Daniel still had an oil business, eventually, because if he's in the 30s kind of thing, the depression is happening you could see his company eventually potentially being bought up by one of these robber barons and basically monopolized. Yes, yes. And a lot of these monopolies aren't like true, true monopolies, but essentially they are. Like with Vanderbilt, he worked in the train industry. Yeah. And he basically operated all of the trains in like the Northeast. However, you also have people like Rockefeller who would own like bizarre trains all over the place because he like would buy the trains so he could transport his oil and then or just give them kickbacks. Yeah. So it was kind of dispersed amongst them. So it was never a true monopoly, but it was really really Definitely close. Really a stranglehold on like segments of industry. I would say it's the equivalent of how many mom and pop grocery stores do you know? Usually like little Asian or Indian depths kind of thing. Yeah, like kind of small places. You don't see yeah. you don't see like you know, Walmart-sized things anymore. <laughs> right, right. In fact, Walmart, like, probably even, like, killed Albertsons. Yeah, I think it did in the U.S. And there is fewer and fewer selection of where you would go to buy such a variety of goods. And that's kind of what's happening here. Like, you still have your Kroger's, but are you going to go to Kroger or are you going to go to Walmart for convenience? Probably going to go to Walmart. And that same thing is happening to Walmart via Amazon. <laughs> so that's that's kind of fun. Um, one important question I think is good here for an analysis is, do you see them as robber barons that are looking for short-term gain that will hurt economies long-term and perhaps like um, nation building and whatnot? And, and also like exploit workers obviously pretty heavily, obviously like working them to the bone kind of hear stories like this with like elon musk requiring like insane amount of hours or uh like very weird demands or do you think of these people as captains of industry who are putting all that hard work to create new things such as the model t or a car giving us the industrial revolution basically and giving us like nice devices such as like this microphone to talk into to distribute to our dear listeners do you think it's more of like a robber baron or a captain of industry? Like these kind of people and their legacy? Or do you think it's a mixed bag? Might be a non-answer, but I think it's a mixed bag. I think there is a, a lot of human suffering that does go into becoming a captain of industry. Kind of like with World War One, a lot of technology was developed because of a mass tragedy on a scale. I don't think it necessarily justifies it. A lot of interesting new technologies came out of that. Obviously, the oil industry back then is not the scope of a world war, the first world war. 
I think a lot of people were hurt by it and continue to be hurt by it. And some really interesting things did come out of it for sure. So I, I think it's it's the joint bag. Like, I, I think at least for our own legacy today, seeing how pipelines get built through, say, First Nations land and taint water and taint environmental, the fact that people are still being affected in a negative manner where people are still using the old mentality of, oh, yeah, we can build this safely. It's fine. We just go through the land. I think there is a lot of weight that should be considered when trying to make these kind of businesses. And at least for now, for like in modern day, I don't think there's as much technological advancements coming out of the oil industry as, say, from 1911, 1927, as we see with uh, the story of There Will Be Blood. Yeah, now it's more of spending their time like making tiny improvements and a lot of lobbying. Yeah, so I th- I think that, of course, both factors were at play at the beginning. I think it's a lot more shifted towards the power and the money, and there's a lot less innovation and progress coming out of it. I mean, especially in terms of environmentalism, there are so many other options, but people are still, like you said, lobbying for lots of oil money and it's like maybe we should be trying to improve technology to make cleaner forms of energy or at least make the options for cleaner form of energy more affordable to the layman yeah and i think that is pretty interesting and it also gives us figures like elon musk who's a different captain of industry not in the oil industry but got his start in one of like what electric cars trying to be more uh, sustainable even right. though like the batteries but the cobalt yeah it's a little bit questionable there yeah um, so th- there is more innovation coming from that front of course but you know every i guess everything has a trade off maybe that's not quite an answer but no i think it's a it's, it's a good answer i was just uh you know, pointing out like a isn't it kind of ironic yeah like, isn't it ironic isn't it ironic that that kind of happens well do you have anything else you want to say about the legacy of Daniel or the legacy of the oil industry as it stands from 1900s to present day? I don't know. I have to think a little bit on this one. I mean, there's so much to say. I mean, it's basically like run our world. I mean, we're even discussing like like oil is like a hot topic, especially in uh, certain areas of the world right? currently. As Who it's knows? like maybe there are some good modern villains that can come out that we can do more research on yes yes i guess another thing that it the legacy of climate change is obviously there but in daniel's time there's no conception yeah we have like what a 30 40 ish year span of his life and business and it's not a concern to him no obviously he's one person he's not seeing any effects because he doesn't live forever uh, maybe HW's children will start feeling some of those effects, but we don't have that story. I also think that a legacy of this is, even though Daniel seems pretty miserable throughout most of the movie, I think he also represents, and as well as the all of the first Gilded Age, the American dream. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, that you can start from nothing and get to the top. Or maybe not necessarily the tippity top, but at least Daniel Plainview. Like a comfortable level where you don't have to worry about your means of living. Yeah, you can have a manservant. Yeah, exactly. You can have your own fucking bowling alley. Yeah. It's interesting to think that the American dream is kind of sold as like, if you just put in the hard work, 
do your time, you'll make it. But even though that myth is kind of created during the Gilded Age, we see Daniel at the very beginning of the film, if he hadn't got lucky with that ore, we wouldn't be following him in the film. No, there'd be no There Will Be Blood movie. Yes. <laughs> he, he obviously worked really hard, but he also had um, some luck on his side, yeah. some opportunity. Mm-hmm. Typically, when it comes to making it rich in terms of the American dream or not, it's a factor of opportunity, luck, and also capitalizing on that timing if you are afforded it. Yes. And Daniel did all of those things to make his rise to not the top, but of course, like a high level. He uh, played his cards as tightly as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he was given an all right hand, not bad, not great. But just an all right hand, but he played it excellently, I would say. Yeah. So what about you? Do you, what else do you think? Uh, is there anything that you would like to talk about with like the legacy of maybe Daniel or the oil industry or like uh, Robert Barron's, these kinds of people or this kind of age? I don't have much else to say about the legacy. I was actually thinking maybe we could get into some of the themes and like interesting factoids about this movie and Daniel as a character. Sure. So the first thing for me that like really stands out is the naming. I am a person who's very interested in character. I know, of course, story and writing are king. I'm a story and writing person. I think characters really drive the story. So in terms of naming the character of Daniel, I found it pretty interesting that they chose his name as Daniel Plainview. Daniel is a name from the Bible and I just thought it was kind of ironic because he's very anti-God. But yeah. Also, I was reading into the subtext of his last name. Plainview sounds like a typical last name, but it also really factors into his approach at the beginning of his journey as a villain, as a character. He looks for the plane in view, but also is seeking out the riches underneath, specifically of oil. So I thought it was just an interesting choice that you're naming him after a God figure, but also that surveyor aspect you're seeing what's underneath you're seeing a gem under the plainness which maybe contributes to like the american dream yeah also one quick thing what's up with like protagonist names and like just two kind of random words of like one action and like one noun being put together to make like a last name skywalker plain view Hayswater. okay anyway sorry that is <laughs> bothering me it's also kind of funny that like for a movie called there will be blood there is like maybe two to three scenes with blood in it yeah it's only when people die in the oil derricks not even i don't even think there's blood when henry gets murdered no it's just like a actually the first time i watched it i was like is he dead or did he just get like shot next to his head and then i was like oh he's dead he did (laughs) Um, and it's not even like really graphic when the blood scenes. I think the most yeah. graphic is probably the ending scene and, um, yeah. Eli's bastion head is not even the focal point. It's actually Daniel. Right. So if you want more blood, go watch the gangs of New York with also <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis in it. Fun, fun movie. Let's so see. why would they call it? There will be blood if it's not like an excessively gory movie. What is the symbology in the name of it? Would it be maybe oil? Like, if oil is the blood of Earth? I don't know. I'm, I'm stretching here. I mean, I actually don't think that's too much of a stretch. If you're comparing the parallel of Old God and New God, as we've discussed a lot, when Daniel has his repentance moment with Eli, he is asked, 
will you accept the blood? Will you be washed in the blood of Jesus specifically? But anytime he is trying to convert or like uh, assimilate somebody for his God of oil, he washes them in oil. So I, I think it's not too far of a stretch to say that blood refers to the oil, especially because that is what brings Daniel together with people and together with the earth. That is his lifeblood. Mm-hmm. Also, maybe I'm just thinking in negatives. Uh, I like how you put that, but on a complete different side. I'm so sorry. There will be blood. It could also be a reference to family in a certain way. Okay. Because, like, you know, like, blood is thicker than water, that sort of thing. It's kind of just, like, ironic because... Ambition is thicker than water for Daniel. Yeah. Like, it, it does not matter. In terms of blood versus oil... I think Daniel and Eli as characters also act as kind of a uh, toxic yin-yang with each For other. For sure. Yeah. They are not only challenging each other, like they both foil each other in terms of their approach to life, their goals, how they speak with each other, but they also mentor each other. Absolutely. And, and like kind of like how to like manipulate like the people. Yeah, because their main tactic is manipulating their society done by different means but they both do it and they both kind of need each other to do it and eventually their whole arc ends in both of each other's demise like they're at the end of their journey together like two entangled particles constantly trying to annihilate each other and daniel not only has this kind of weird yin yang and like entanglement thing but they're also fighting for the same thing for different ends so the same means different ends. And while on the surface, it might appear that they're uh, vying for like space or territory of like leasing land or power or power or uh, something to that effect or like monetary like value. But what they're really fighting for is time and attention. Yeah. As humans bound to their mortal coil, regardless of which God you believe in, that's all you can actually bank on in life. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Unless your attention goes, like, out the window. Like mine. Right now. What? Yeet. Hmm? Right. Okay. I, I think that, really, Eli kind of vies for uh, time and attention for himself. And then he uses the method of God to kind of, like, lie about certain aspects to position himself better in the community. And to convince the community to spend their time and attention on him. Correct. That will eventually lead to, like, money and his other further goals. Or, you know, uh, trying to manipulate people like Daniel Plainview, which went excellent. Excellent plan. And then you have Daniel, who also is vying for time and attention. While the land is very important to him, he needs the workers from the town. Mm -hmm. He can't, like, just run the drill by himself. And he's always competing for time. Whereas... Eli is fighting for time to basically, like, elongate it as much as possible. Whereas I think Daniel Plainview is trying to shorten time. I guess that also ties in with, like, their worldview. Even if Eli believes in a god or not, him trying to elongate time, like, factors in with the eternal life aspect of, like, a Christianity or some kind of belief in higher power. Whereas Daniel is a lot more present. I have what is on this earth. I want to... Do it. Do it now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty good summary of that. And uh, 
I would say kind of as a villain, Daniel's a very poised, calm, cool, collected, for like the most part. Yeah, he has a few flare-ups, but for the most part, like we mentioned, he acts a little bit like a Pol Pot, you know, chill. Yeah, quiet. maybe not as creepy. Yeah. Also, Pol Pot, see the last episode? I, I heard it was a banger, but Daniel also has a silver tongue, even though it's a kind of rough. It's like a blue-collar silver tongue. It's a sharp silver tongue. It's a sharp silver tongue. It's gonna tongue. hurt you a little bit, but it's smooth. Yes, and he really like utilizes this skill set to convince people to uh, drill for oil or to lease their lands to drill for oil. Mm-hmm. Or, there's just a ton of convincing. Um, there's a lot less paperwork back then, so that was nice. <laughs> But he does this all to basically get to the oil, whereas, like, Eli kind of, like, convinces people that he's a, uh, a prophet and a healer in order to profit. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that kind of encapsulates their weird yin-yang and yeah, how, like, Eli's kind of a mentor, too. Yeah, they both learned a lot from each other and also fucked each other. <laughs> yeah, uh, Eli and Daniel definitely teach each other like how to like operate in like timing and whatnot Mm -hmm. or how to like get so-and-so's attention how to use people as resources yes they are playing a game of chess with real people yeah or poker or whatever they're playing a game with people's lives so both of them are a little bit guilty (laughs) yeah fair enough I think, I guess, as a final note of some themes and, like, general notes from this movie, Daniel, as a character, pretty accurately fulfills the role of the greedy capitalist, as we've discussed with, like, a lot of his motivations and temptations. But one thing that I found interesting, tying in with the calm, cool, collected aspect, he's not, like, the capitalist fat pig sitting on his money bags or Scrooge McDuck. He's never trying to tout his wealth over people up until the very end, but he's not even touting it over people then because no one's around to look at his mansion he is doing it and for the love of the game yeah i'm just kidding well kind (laughs) of for the love of the gamble yeah because he's doing it because that's all he knows after striking out it's actually pretty interesting one of a, a robber baron that's actually kind of similar to uh daniel in a few ways but not every way is actually a guy by the name of J Gold Gould? How do you how do you how do you pronounce G O U L D? Gold. Gold? Yeah. Who spells it? Okay. Anyway, <laughs> J Gold uh was a man who was interestingly enough as a child just dropped off at a nearby school with 50 cents and a sack of clothes. HW it's basically HW, <laughs> but, and then, like, would, like, grow up to become one of, like, the wealthiest men in the 19th century. How about that? Yeah, and he mostly did it through, I believe, barbed wire and then oil. Ah. But very uh, fascinating if you want to go read, like, a di- like an actual Captain of Industry or Robber Baron other than, like, the big names that you usually hear. Yeah. That would be uh, maybe a good starting place. Well... If there's nothing else to say about the legacy and analysis, do you want to do a summary of the villain's arc and then get into his tactics and alignment? Sure. So the threshold and trauma for Daniel kind of happens at two different points. The threshold, obviously, is when he strikes oil for the first time. 
But his trauma is, I think, when after striking oil, his own business, he watches a coworker die, which ends with him raising said coworker's son as his own HW. And I would say that his mentor, I mean, we kind of just went over this, yeah. but uh, is in one way, Eli, like teaching him like kind of like the ways of the land, like kind of not only the people, but where to go, like, you know, who to true, see. True, true, yeah. And acting as his mentor in this region. There's also possibly another one that's a little bit more abstract, and I would just say the oil industry itself, because it's so cutthroat. It was also newly developed, so he came up with that industry, essentially. Yeah, he's seen it since it's, like, infancy. Yeah. And as part of the industry becoming his mentor, it also acted in a way as his motivation. Temptations coming from money and power, but he really shapes his family business as part of this oil industry, it really motivates him to tout HW as part of this family business and to kind of seize control of the land, control at least a small scope of the industry with his family that motivates him forward throughout his journey for the most part, up until his event horizon. Yeah, and I also say on his temptations that on a more personal level, he just wants to become that recluse hermit, which he eventually gets. Yeah. And I'm wondering kind of like Eli is basically like the last person he also cuts out of his life. So mm-hmm. if it's not cutting off God, it's basically the last important person that he knew that right. was around. Right. Um, and so he finally got his wishes. In the end, yeah. However, we see that it, that obviously came with some hardships. Like in his like revelation, not the third revelation, I might say. Um, <laughs> let's call it his death. How about that? Is another workplace accident. Which kills another coworker and another accident, which deafens his son, which causes like kind of communication problems and tarnishes Daniel's business and like the brand, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. It's not the final death of their relationship, but it is like the first nail in the coffin, so to speak. Well, that I really think sends things down. I like a death inside of Daniel. Yeah, yeah. Sounds I- like a band name. Death inside of Daniel. <laughs> dead in daniel after that of course he does experience a rebirth and a transformation he consents to it but with a chagrin daniel pretends to accept god in eli's church and gets his fucked up baptism by his enemy essentially in order to transform his business and get the pipeline through bandy's land towards the ocean ultimately making him rich all of those riches turns out did not turn him into a good person (laughs) Because his event horizon, Daniel tells H.W. that he was an orphan and basically disowns him and says that he's his competition and will basically like kind of slaughter him in business. Right. And it's really hard because this is the third time that Daniel is basically just letting H.W. go for seemingly no reason. One could say this is H.W.'s third revelation that his dad's a piece of shit. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Many years after this event horizon, Daniel doesn't necessarily atone, but he does face his resolution, in which he murders his rival, Eli, of course, by bashing his brains in in a bowling alley. And finally, the legacy. He is a sad, lonely man who is finished. He's, That's he's, the last line of the movie that he, he says. He's finished. He's just finished with it. 
But more so, we kind of cover the legacy of like capitalism, greed, like mostly industry, mostly mm-hmm. industry stuff and how industrialization has left its impact uh, with us and some of the leaders, I guess you could say, behind those movements. Industrialization has crippled the globe. Thank you. And while that song comes from a fictional thing, Daniel's also fictional, but I think it's, it. I mean, you gotta get the legacy from somewhere, mm-hmm. so we're just kind of pulling it from what we see. And that's basically, Daniel's story is a story of probably maybe a handful of people inside of America during that time. And it's, you know, just a small version of the big monopolies that kind of tip the scales of power across the world in favor of one thing or another to maybe a different political end. Makes sense. Tipping the scales. They still control the world today. That's us. Shh. You're going to reveal our secrets. Let's cover Daniel's villain's archetype. How about? Can't reveal all our secrets. What would his archetype be? For me, I think one, it doesn't really encompass his entire journey, but Daniel definitely exhibits symptoms of being a bully. Although Eli is not the protagonist, Daniel is a straightforward opposition to him. And the reason why is basically because they go against each other's ideas, at least at face value. Daniel bullies Eli throughout the film as the antagonist, and also, unfortunately, kind of acts as a bully towards his own adoptive son, H.W., at the end of his journey by dismissing him, mocking his hearing impairment, and eventually disowning him from the family. Yeah. At first, when you said bully, I was like, okay, what? I don't get, like, where this is coming from. But by the end of that, I'm, like, right there with you, same page. It's not his entire journey, but he exhibits bullyish tendencies a few times that I think factor into his character archetype. I would say he's, like, he's definitely a bully. But I would say, overall, he is kind of a mastermind in it, like, in and of himself. Like, he just has himself to, like, work with. The only hard part about this is usually it's kind of targeted at a protagonist. Mm-hmm. But since Daniel's our protagonist, or the antagonist would become the protagonist, so Eli would probably be the aim of Daniel's will. And he basically creates all of these crazy like plans of building the pipeline and doing all of this and uh, digging wells and, you know oil stuff i don't think he initially goes into it like even though he's been pitched by paul so to speak about this oil and then meets eli shortly thereafter i don't think his initial intent is like oh i'm gonna foil this annoying church boy like his motivations aren't necessarily off the bat to put eli in his place so i I guess in terms of a typical mastermind i don't think it would be the standard protagonist antagonist foil journey but he does mastermind plans to, like, get his money and get his power. I just don't think because there is a true protagonist, say, in this film, that it would work as uh, black and white as a mastermind typically would. Yeah, I can see that. I was kind of thinking of just, like, the masterminding around Eli and then also with uh, probably masterminding the whole Union Oil uh, escaping out of Bandyland, mm-hmm. um, which would eventually lead daniel to being in eli's church and then eli you know i i think and also him sending away hw 
um, just to have him come back. Like he's always the, like the the Pulling first the one in the know. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So I would say that like, but I kind of agree with you too. If we think more of like a classic villain, it's he's no Joker. Yeah. So maybe like I would go with something like more of a criminal archetype. I mean, Robert Baron. Fair enough. He is in it for money and power. He's not necessarily breaking laws explicitly, but if the villain archetype is the one that's in it for money and power, Daniel ticks those boxes, essentially. I mean, and technically he's killed people, so... Yeah, true, true, true. I bet there's some tax fraud in there somewhere. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I guess the last archetype for me that I think would suit Daniel is a little bit of the machine, which typically falls into sci-fi movies more so as like a lifeless emotional cold and calculating character but i think daniel exhibits that a little bit maybe in terms of like sociopathy a skosh he's the, very like yeah anti-social personality disorder or at least like a narcissist he shows emotion two or three times in the film the same amount of times blood is shed in the film the main character who drives the story shows emotion and i i think because he Basically, it's just the stoic oil man who works until he reaches his goals. I think that's a fitting archetype for him until he does show his feelings. <laughs> but Yeah, I would say that that one works, but also kind of like to the degree that the mastermind one kind of works. Yeah, it's a little bit further fetched. Like it's not 100% spot on. Yeah, but I can see that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think actually the bully might work the best here. <laughs> he he is a bully. <laughs> Definitely. Either bully or criminal. Maybe he's a criminal bully. Yeah, like, he he's definitely not one of the more evil characters we've covered, but he does some really nasty things mm-hmm. and murders people, eventually. What about his alignment? Hmm. Now, naturally, I would probably choose, like, neutral evil. Um, what about you? Actually, I was going to say neutral evil, too. Oh, damn. I mean, in terms of that villain alignment, neutral evil characters are pragmatists and aren't shackled by impulses or rules of law, typically interested in one thing, themselves. Which feels like the criminal archetype. Yeah. The neutral evil character will do whatever is most prudent to get them to their desired destination, no matter who they hurt along the way. And I think because Daniel- The bully archetype? Yep. And Daniel's execution of the bully for sure- He's in it for money and power and becoming the oil king, and he bullies people to get to that means. He never shows remorse along the way, especially, like, when he loses employees on the job, he's like, okay, half day off, I will pretend to show remorse to save face in the community. Wait, is HW remorse? Does that count? HW wasn't legally an employee? I don't know, what was the age restriction for labor back then? (laughs) Uh, can you walk? Okay, so he showed remorse for one employee because that <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, like, Daniel's wreaking environmental havoc, emotional havoc. His job damages a lot in terms of the world and the people around him, but he continues on for his soul gain. So I think that's what would make him a neutral evil character. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think anything else here would really fit. I don't think he's lawful at all, so that rules out anything lawful. He's definitely not stupid. Definitely not. Eli would be a stupid evil character, maybe. I, I think Eli's actually pretty smart. He's just not uh, Daniel smart. I, I guess or Paul smart. Him. Yeah. <laughs> Same person. Um, dun, 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 dun. I don't even think he's chaotic, either. He seems kind of meticulous. I mean, the fact that he's the stoic oil man that doesn't show much emotion with the, the machine archetype, a skosh, 
yeah, there, there's not really a chaos in him. He keeps his cool aside from his alcoholism, which I don't think we touched on much, but he does have a substance abuse problem that kind of shows more towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. But it, the only time it ever goes off the rails, I think, is when he is drunk and kills Henry and is drunk and kills Eli. That about wraps up our overview and analysis of Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. You know what's also in plain view? What's that, pray tell? What made us villainous this month? Oh, well, I've had a nefarious plan concocting since uh, August. When are we? End of September? Yes, yes. I got a sticker pack. Oh, my God. A a small anime girl from something called Spy Multiplied by Family. Uh, Fan favorite Anya Forger. No. Um, Anya's great, but no. Yes, yes. I, I got this pack because there's been a nefarious plot to annoy Trin because I know... I am going to <laughs> Minecraft you. <laughs> he has no spatial awareness, so my plot for the past two months now, I've been hiding tiny Anya stickers around the apartment in various obvious and very discreet locations, and I've also hid one like embroidery patch. I think you found five out of the 14 that I've hidden. Oh my god. Wait, you just found one today. So I've been taking these little stickers of this cute little anime girl and hiding them in artwork, in computers, on clothes. You found the one in the computer. Right, right, right. I I put one inside his computer that he took apart the other day and was like, what the fuck? I also put one. I'm only disclosing the ones you've discovered. There was one. No, no, no. Go on. Go on. There was one hidden on the back of your playing card in your philosophizing hat that you only discovered recently, and the embroidery patch was under the hood of one of your jackets. Uh, what about the other one? I mean, you found the fridge one today. The fridge magnet. Oh, I thought I'd get you. I, no, I'm being I, framed! I, I'm being at framed! At this point, I've hidden so many Anya stickers that the ones that are in plain view, haha, <laughs> I see, but I've probably forgotten where the other ones are. Hmm... I'm being framed as a lollycon. <laughs> no, no! Trin is inspecting the apartment right now. There's, like, another one really close by that he's looking for. I'm sorry for the bad audio listeners. I have to go check. I have to. For your sake. I found another one. <laughs> That's, like, the most obvious one other than the patch, but... I was actually, like, just utilizing that the other day. Yeah. Uh, Trin found another one on the mandolin case. It's a very big sticker, too, that I'm surprised you haven't seen. But, yeah, so I've been slowly driving this man insane. I've been, I gave him cryptic hints about where they were located, and it, it's taken a while. And it'll, <laughs> I'm just fine. What made you villainous other than going insane? <laughs> uh, I stole a car. That was nice. So I got me a nice a nice whip now. Went and got it, you know, converted. Converted to street legal so the cops don't catch on. You know, I'm making a stable thing. I'm not just going to go steal a car or I'll bank get rid of it. Um, if I'm going to steal a mom van, then I want to utilize all of its safety features. Fair. I am a prudent thief. I don't just steal any car. You have to check Kelly Blue Books. Obviously. And make sure you have some form of licensing and registration and maybe a pack of baby wipes and a teddy bear in the back. So if you get pulled over, you might get secret sympathy. So I was also poisoned. (laughs) 
That was fun. Apparently, the people that came after me last episode tried going through a different route to poison me this time, and it almost worked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I had a secret reversal serum uh, that I was able to utilize that actually worked very well to my advantage, and I was actually only sick for about two days. Radiation's not fun. Anyway, I also accessed some classified documents. You do that, like, every day. That were not my own. Okay, fair, fair, yeah. You have full access to World Domination Committee files. And then once I got access to those files, I was then able to get away in my mom van. And who's going to suspect a mom van? Fair. Also, an interesting fact, the mom van is named Minnie Van Helsing. Hell yeah. (laughs) Well, if you would like to be part of the World Domination Committee... Follow us on whatever interface that you listen to podcasts on and leave us a review. There's also a new feature on Spotify for Q&As, so once we enable that, leave us some Qs and we'll give you some As. You can also infiltrate the Wired with us at worlddomination.ca. You can also send us some villainous correspondence to committee at worlddomination.ca. Yes, I know it's been broken for a little bit. It's it's fixed. It's all good now. Is it really? It is. (laughs) Wasn't my fault. Read our snarky remarks on the hellscape that is Twitter. Or X, Twitter. No, I am X. And I'm Twitter. At the WDC podcast. See what shenanigans I'm up to at trend.tech. T-R-Y-N-N dot T-E-C-H. Proliferate the gay agenda by reading what we do in the closet on top of us. Well, that's all, fuckers! This podcast was brought to you by Bad Baby Productions.